Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I'm one of the more than 15 million who have watched the video of the scene in the gymnasium of New Jersey's Buna Regional High School. Watch the 17-year-old Andrew Johnson, an African-American high school wrestler, standing with slumped shoulders as a female official cut off his dreadlocks with cool efficiency. Witnessing Andrew's humiliation, hundreds of spectators in the stands who'd come to see Johnson and his teammates wrestle in a local tournament. But minutes before it was to start, referee Alan Maloney ordered Andrew either to cut his hair or forfeit playing. As his team's acknowledged star, he was under intense pressure to participate, and he did. But when the referee raised Andrew's arm in victory, the young man snatched his arm away and walked off with his head down. That moment was too much for me. I found myself shaking with anger, so mad I could not stop the tears running down my face. Maybe some in that crowd observed the forced haircut impassively, but Andrew's humiliation felt especially personal to we black folks who wear our hair naturally. Dreadlock-wearing and Oscar-nominated director Ava DuVernay said she was wrecked by the scene. WGBH attorney and natural hair product entrepreneur Nikkei Okadaji noted hair becomes politicized, it seems, when we continue to embrace ourselves. But whether or not we wear our hair naturally, we recognize what happened to Andrew as part of a painful continuum of attacks on African-American culture and identity. From the moment enslaved Africans arrived on these shores, those original human traffickers tortured their stolen chattel into a 
abandoning who they were and accepting new customs, even names. In his seminal novel Roots, author Alex Haley chronicled the brutal process of forcing Kunta Kente, based on his African ancestor, to become Toby. And so, referee Maloney was not satisfied that Andrew's hair was cut. According to the Johnson family lawyer, Maloney pushed the scissor-wielding official to keep cutting until he was satisfied with the length. This is the same guy who, in 2016, was sanctioned for using the N-word against a black referee. This shouldn't have happened. There is rule-sanctioned head coverings for long-haired wrestlers, which Andrew had worn in past tournaments. That's why New Jersey's governor found the forced haircut troubling. The New Jersey ACLU was blunt in assessing Maloney's actions as race-based, asking how many different ways will people try to exclude black people from public life without having to declare their bigotry. In an emergency meeting, the Buna Regional School Board decided that Alan Maloney would never again referee a sporting event in the district, and then they fired him. The epic racist demeaning Andrew suffered deserved no less a response. Dual investigations by both the state's Athletic Association and the Civil Rights Division hopefully will result in a longer-term fix. Andrew's parents say he is trying to move on. But I ache for him, fully understanding the psychic damage he has endured. Andrew will never forget what happened, I know, as I know that he will have to spend his life defending his right simply to be who he is. I am Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. This is dedicated to who it may concern. The voice of Nina Simone, singer, songwriter, classically trained pianist, and activist. It's in that last role that she comes to our attention today because Nina Simone composed an American anthem. Noelle King has the latest in our series. Today, for our American Anthem series, a song that uplifts and inspires. First, some history. We're going to start in 1963 with the murder of Medgar Evers. Evers was killed by a Klansman, shot in the back in his own driveway in Mississippi. Then three months later, in Birmingham, Alabama, four little girls were killed in a church bombing. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave their eulogy. They died uh, between the sacred walls of the Church of God. They were discussing the eternal meaning of love. In response to the grief and outrage, Simone wrote a powerful song with unsparing lyrics and a provocative title, Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Fast forward to 1968, and you've got the scene for today's American anthem. The Black Power movement was rising. 
pride in being black and beautiful was expressed by afros and fists raised in the air. Nina Simone captures this moment of joy in black identity. Simone wrote the song for children, but it became an anthem for adults, too. To be young, gifted, and black was a dedication to Nina Simone's friend, the playwright Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. Hansberry was the first black woman to have a play performed on Broadway. She and Simone bonded over civil rights and radical politics. And then in January 1965, Hansberry died of cancer at the age of 34. A few months before she died, Hansberry had told a group of student essay winners, you are young, gifted, and black. Those words stuck in Nina Simone's head. Here she is. This will sound very strange, but not to people who are really hip. She kept trying to tell me something. And I remember getting a feeling in my body. And I said, that's it. To be young, gifted, and black. That's all and sat down at the piano at that moment and made up a tune. Simone wrote the music. The words came from her band leader, Weldon Irvine. Simone told him, make it simple, to quote, make black children all over the world feel good about themselves forever. Young, Gifted, and Black caught on, and other artists quickly recorded it, including soul singer Donny Hathaway in 1970. Aretha Franklin released her version in 1972. We invited two contemporary artists, African-American women from very different backgrounds, to share their thoughts on this American anthem. My name is Michelle Ndegiocello, and I'm a musician and a parent. Michelle Ndegiocello is a 10-time Grammy nominee. She released the album A Dedication to Nina Simone in 2012. She says when she was growing up, there was a real need for this song. It's the first time I heard those words said about young black people. You know, being of color, you did not feel that you were gifted, and especially if you're black. The first person to play the song for her was a white woman, her middle school teacher. In D.C., music wasn't so segregated. I mean, I love Burt Bacharach, and I grew up listening to The Carpenters, but she also played me, like, Bob Marley, Salif Keita. Mm. Um, It was the beginning of my awareness of Africa. And it was somewhere in one of those classes, or Black History Month, where she was like, we're going to try to perform this song in a choir setting. As time passed, though, it became less popular. My name is Somi, and I'm a vocalist and a writer. Last year, Nina Simone's profile was raised again when she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Somi honored her in her own way in 2018. She performed Simone's songs at Lincoln Center in New York City. Somi was born in Illinois. Her parents were immigrants from Rwanda and Uganda. They encouraged her to take pride in her African heritage. She didn't really need a song for that. 
which made me wonder if she thinks this song is still necessary. I think it is important just to have these messages that tell young Black people that they are of value. When you look at the March of Our Lives that recently happened in Washington and Naomi Wadler coming up there and feeling as though she had to speak. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper. You know, that speaks to the need for black youth, you know, to be seen, um, to be heard. It's an inner anthem, I think, is existing on a subconscious level. In 2012, Michelle Indegiacello, who has two sons, invited the singer Cody Chestnut to perform Young, Gifted, and Black on her album, A Dedication to Nina Simone. This was during the time of the whole Trayvon Martin uh, incident. And I was affected as a mother. And so it just really, for some reason, I felt um, should be voiced with a strong male presence. And that's why I chose Cody Chestnut. When you're young, gifted and black, your soul's intact. I hope it only makes you ask the question, why did that song have to be written? Nina Simone said she wanted this song to inspire black children to feel good about themselves forever. Maybe that's a lot to ask for one song. But that message is as important as it was when to be young, gifted, and black first became an American anthem. Thirteen-year-old Divine Apollon II plays hockey. He plays defense for a Maryland team called the Metro Maple Leafs. In a recent tournament, he was suspended after a fight broke out. Divine says he was punched. He was punched first, and he fought back. The game was sort of tied, and at one point they were beating us by a point, but then we were also beating them. And the other team was saying stuff to the entire team in general, like we were bad But then as they got closer to the middle of the game and further on, then they started saying racist things like making the monkey noises and that sort of stuff. I wasn't really worried about it because my dad, he's told me not to pay attention to things like that and just keep on playing. Divine is black and says he was called the N-word and received chants of get off the ice, go play basketball. His teammates didn't stand for it. They yelled back. And the brawl broke out. Divine the second's father, Divine Apollon, told Noel King this is nothing new. We've had this situation before. Uh, he's been playing hockey now for the past five years, and about two years ago is when it first started. And I, you know, I explained to him, listen, your job is to play hockey. You don't deal with the refs. You don't deal with the coaches. That's my that's my department. Um, and you know, I transferred that also into you know police, teachers, adults. That's not your realm to deal with. That's, that's for me to deal with. Um, I had the same conversation with my daughters. Unfortunately, we played tennis because that's a predominantly uh, non-black sport. So I knew when he fell in love with hockey that this would be part of the experience, unfortunately. So for the most part, we took it, we handled it, and kept moving, you know. And I always told him, you know, your performance on the ice is the single most important thing you need to deal with. The day that this all happened, did you know it was happening? No. You didn't? No. We could see the kids were very aggressively speaking to everybody. His coach is also black. And they were yelling at our coach, yelling at our benches, yelling at the refs. And apparently what we found out later on is I guess they had a – Reputation of doing this on a regular basis. We got reputations. Not in terms of the racial piece, because obviously they're not not only black kids, but I guess they were well known for mouthing off back at the refs, and 
in our opinion, the refs let too much of it go on for too long. So, Divine, your dad gets choked up talking <laughs> about this. You seem like you're handling it with some amount of distance. You were the one on the ice when people were taunting you. You managed to ignore it in the moment. Can I ask you, how do you pull that off? So I get penalized often because I'm big and kids end up getting hurt when I hit them. Okay. So I realized if I was to retaliate or or hit the kid or something, I'd end up getting penalized again. So I just brushed it off. Have your teammates had to defend you against racism before or was this the first time? Um, I think it was the first time. Wow. How did that make you feel? It made me feel appreciated like I actually was supposed to be there. And that somebody that wasn't just my dad or my family members actually cared. Dad, you're nodding your head. <laughs> no, that's the first time I heard that. So, yeah. Let me ask you, you said you were surprised that Divine's teammates were as outraged as they were. Mm. Why were you surprised? Um, because it, it's so commonplace, unfortunately. I've been dealing with it so long. You, you, you're upset sometimes, but then you say, you know, at the end of the day, there's not much that can be done. The racism piece, like I said, we, I've been dealing with that since, you know, I've been black my whole life. So, <laughs> you know, my mother's Haitian, Haitian family. So we've, we've dealt with that a long time. So you kind of get a tougher skin about it because reacting to it obviously is going to cause more problems than, than it's going to solve. Divine, how did you feel when your teammates' parents were really surprised that this had happened to you and they were really surprised that this is something you've dealt with before. How does it make you feel that there are grown-ups in the United States who, frankly, couldn't imagine something like this happening? Um, I just thought it was funny because funny, they didn't know it, it was something that happens, even though it happens to me uh, pretty often. When you hear your son say, I just, I just find it funny, um, what do you think? I mean, that's a pretty... That's a remarkable statement, you know, because he's 13 and you think of adults as being older and wiser and your son is saying, no, I I don't expect them to be. What about you? Unfortunately, after a while, you kind of get accustomed to things like that happening. And being the society we live in, we're looked on differently. I don't want to paint a broad picture of, of everyone, but when we go to certain places, it's noticed that that we quote unquote don't belong. We, we quote unquote aren't supposed to be here. You know, I've had people ignore me at other rinks who work there. They'll brush me off, and you you kind of know the, the telltale signs that okay we're not wanted here, and you kind of keep moving on and finding other we find other ways to deal with things. So it doesn't get to a point where where I become the quote unquote angry black guy. Divine, has any of this at any point made you want to quit hockey? No. No, why not? Because I enjoy to it with. too much and I put too much time and effort into it to just give up on it. And Dad, let me ask you a question. I'm curious about your son bottling up his feelings mm-hmm. and and feeling like he cannot have a reaction to this because if he does, it's going to hurt him in the sport and it's going to hurt him in the eyes of his teammates and it's going to hurt him in the eyes of the opposition. Um, telling a young person, just let it roll off you, it's often the only advice that doesn't always make it good advice you know do you worry about that um you know i guess i never thought about it like that but at the end of the day playing a team sport you have to kind of understand it's a team sport you know i tell them a lot of times when he gets penalized or he's ejected from games your teammates are relying on you to be there but that also transfers into life you know he's 13 now in three or four years he'll be driving if you get pulled over by the police, do you immediately start yelling at the police officer because you think he's wrong for pulling you over? No. You listen to it. You see what's going on, and you deal with that accordingly.
Divine, let me ask you a question. If you had the chance to say whatever is on your mind or in your heart to the players who were abusing you out on the ice, what would you want to say to those boys who made racist comments at you? I would ask them why. Yeah. Like, why were they doing it? For what reason? Even though we were already beating them. Dad, if you had an opportunity to talk to the coach of the other team about what his players were saying to your son, what would you say to this man? I mean, as a coach, you're controlling young minds who are going to run the world at some point. When you feed into an environment of bigotry or racism, you're you're teaching them that's okay. Um, especially in the environment we're living in now where, unfortunately, it seems like things have gone backwards in terms of race relations. The last thing you want to do is encourage children to perpetuate that going forward over the next 20, 30, 50 years. As a leader, as a coach, you have control of some of the greatest minds our future is going to hold. You need to utilize that a little better than you are currently. Noel spoke with Divine Apollon II and his father, Divine Apollon. We want to make note, we reached out to the team accused of racism. You do want to hear from everybody. Haven't heard back. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi-ho, the dairy the farmer in the dell. When you think about organic farm-to-table food, what do you think of? All right, now, what does the farmer look like? America's sustainable food movement is growing, but it's still predominantly white. And that can have the potential to result in the neglect of the needs of more diverse communities. Here in New York City, Councilmember Rafael Espinal sponsored legislation to expand urban agriculture and maintain community gardens. He introduced that back in August. But activists argue there's still a long way to go. Some are even taking it upon themselves to grow fresh food, primarily for communities of color living in so-called food deserts. So joining me now is one such farmer. Leah Penniman is the co-director and program manager of Soul Fire Farm, and her new book is a how-to guide on how to grow food and give back. It's called Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Leah, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on the book, and welcome to WNYC. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Tell us about Soul Fire Farm. Where is it? What do you grow? Sure. Um, we are stewarding 72 acres of snowy mountainside land in upstate New York, a little town of Grafton. And we started in 2011 with a mission to end racism and injustice in the food system. So with our tiny team of eight folks, uh, we grow food using Afro-Indigenous techniques and get it to the people who need it most in our community. And we're also training uh, hundreds of new farmers each year from Black, Indigenous, Latinx communities. The title, Farming While Black, is obviously a play on words, a nod to driving while black, living while black, um, stories, obviously, in which African Americans uh, you know, talk about being racially profiled, help to remind us in 2018 how public spaces are still perceived along racial lines. So why pick the Farming While Black uh, confection as the title for your book? 
well, our history as black agrarian people is pretty riddled uh, with racism and oppression. You know, of course, we know that 12 and a half million of our folks were kidnapped from the shores of West Africa to build the agriculture in this nation. Uh, but it didn't end in 1865. You know, we live on a legacy of sharecropping and convict leasing, which is the state's practice of filling the prisons with black folks and renting them back out to the plantation. You know, and even today, we, we have to deal with the legacy of farm worker oppression and the fact that you know, 85% of the folks who grow our food have brown skin and don't have the same legal protections. So it's it's dangerous to uh, be a steward of the lands and be black or brown in the country. And, and we wanted to recognize that in the book and also uplift the noble contributions of, of black folks to sustainable agriculture at the same time. And so one initiative I see that Soul Fire Farm took on right away was a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture um, which allows farmers to bring their goods directly to consumers in the city. Tell us about your CSA. Sure. You know, and of course, we have to shout out Booker T. Watley, a professor at Tuskegee University, a black land grant college in the South, for inventing the idea of the CSA. So this came right out of the black community as a way of achieving uh, economically viable farms. And the way that works for us, uh, we have 100 families who are members of our CSA. And every Wednesday, we box up all the vegetables and herbs and eggs and meat uh, that we grow here on the farm, and we bring it right to the doorsteps of those who need it most. Uh, we center refugees, immigrants, and people impacted by mass incarceration, and people pay just what they can afford for that food. How far and wide? Is this basically uh, being distributed in New York City or, or more than that? Oh, well, we're hyper-local. We're actually about uh, three and a half hours north of New York City. So we serve the Albany and Troy communities. Uh, but we do have sibling farms, we call them, in New York City, uh, notably Corbin Hill Food Project, which does a very similar program that does reach New York City. You write about how, um, in, in the book, the idea of sustainable farming practices, CSAs and so on, that these ideas were presented to you most often by white farmers. It wasn't until later that you discovered a lot of these farming and community building practices actually have deep, deep roots in African-American culture. Can, can you talk a, a little bit about your evolution of the understanding there? Yeah, and that uh, learning has been so important because, you know, as Chris Bolden Newsom says, the land was the scene of the crime, right? And so we have all this trauma associated with land. And I think one of the ways that we heal the trauma is by understanding that our history of, of noble relationship with the land is much longer and deeper than that history of oppression. You know, it goes back to even Cleopatra. She came up with vermicomposting, the idea of using worms to worm castings to enrich the soil. Uh, the raised beds that we love so much come from the Ovambo people in Namibia, and the cover cropping comes from George Washington Carver at Tuskegee, uh, and many, many other examples. So uh, our curriculum at Soul Fire Farm is based off of these techniques and technologies, and Farming While Black is the first chance we've had to put that all together in one place. There's a story that you tell in the book of how you connect with your African ancestors uh, through farming in particular, or farming particular seeds. Uh, can you talk about maybe the Dahomey women of West Africa in relation to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one really important legacy story is that of our grandmas, 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 who, when they knew that they were going to be kidnapped from their homeland, made this courageous and beautiful decision to braid the seeds that they'd saved for generations into their hair. So the cow pea, molokia, black rice, uh, melon seeds, okra seeds. And they knew they were going to be you know, removed from their land and dispossessed, but they wanted to carry that heritage with them and believed against odds in a future of tilling and reaping on soil. Um, so we think of ourselves as folks who are carrying on that legacy of the women who braided seeds in their hair. 
And you're very transparent in the book about what it took to start Soul Fire Farm, like listing the prices for how much you paid for your land, how much it cost to get the irrigation put in, things like that. What do you hope that'll teach readers? Well, you know, personally, I'm a real practical uh, type of person, type of activist. I don't have a lot of patience for armchair activism or Twitter activism. So this book had to be a how-to guide. It had to really lay bare, you know, how do you get land? How do you save seed? You know, how do you improve degraded soil? And so that's the heart of the book is is all of these tips and tools that we've learned through trial and error over time so folks can uh, not make the same mistakes. Let's take a phone call. Amy in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Amy. Hi. Um, I was wondering two things. Um, one is uh, how can how can buyers want to support this effort? Uh, find out the um, you know, if, if it's benefiting farmers of color or um, or not. And uh, and the other thing is, I wonder um, if Ms. Kerman thinks that the um, that there might be a, a connection between um, that the, between this issue and uh, the. The image of, uh, of organic food as as the as elite. Two, is- two, two really good questions. <laughs> Those Leah? are great questions. Yeah, well, everyone can get involved. You know, it's not black folks who've made the food system racist, and so we all need to pitch in and, and make it better. Um, some practical next steps you can take is if you go to soulfirefarm.org under Take Action, we have a policy platform um, that was put together by over 100 black farmers saying this is what needs to change in terms of the law and also right in our local communities. And one of those tools we created is a reparations map uh, that's there. And you can go on and find projects in your area and reach out and support them. So there are some practical ne- next steps for all of us. And yeah, I agree. You know, the image of organic food is elite. And that partly is because the farm bill, the farm bill subsidizes cheap, crappy food. And, and we have to pay the full price of that good organic food. Um, so there's a systemic issue there. But I think something that's been important for us is to reclaim, you know, our connection to that good food. Fannie Lou Hamer said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. So that idea of healthy food, um, growing for ourselves, canning, that's been part of our heritage, and we need to reclaim that narrative for ourselves. Chuck in Washington, D.C. You're on WNYC. Hi, Chuck. Hey, hi. This is uh, Chuck uh, from Washington, D.C. Southeast. And uh, my question is that, uh, is there an African-American CSA here in D.C.? Because your caller, or I mean caller, your, Guest. You know, your author is amazing, and I wish she had a YouTube channel. If she needs help, let me know. <laughs> um, but it'd be great because what she's doing is so inc- incredibly good, and, and I'm a black man in D.C., and I'm listening to your show, and I was wondering if there's something that exists here in, in the Mid-Atlantic Zone. You know who you should get in touch with is Reverend Heber Brown in Baltimore, who is doing some incredible food security work with the church community. And he knows everybody, so he can definitely connect you. Um, There's also the Black Dirt uh, Collective near y'all who are in our network. Um, So I know it's happening and I'm not obviously I don't live in your area, so I can't tell you the details, but reach out to Reverend Brown. Okay, thank you so much. Chuck, thank thank you. Thank you very much. My guest is Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Her Soul Fire Farm is in upstate Grafton, New York. And Richard in New Rochelle has a question about that location, I think. Richard, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, Brian and Leah. Um, Yeah, I'm uh, quite familiar with Grafton. It's a rural area, about 20 miles to the uh, to the east of uh, Troy, 
Uh, and uh, there are no black families that I'm aware of that live in that area. I, I haven't run across any. And, in fact, the uh, people that I know in the area are, uh, I think, uh, fairly characterized as redneck. And I just wondered why Leah would have chosen to establish uh, this kind of a farm in that area. Do you think that's a fair characterization? I don't, don't want to a... overgeneralize about people, but go ahead. No, that is a powerful question. You know, the public schools here, last time I checked, the students and the teachers were 100% white. Um, and it is a poor working class area. You know, but I think it's really important for us to remember that the land we're on, this is Stockbridge Muncie Mohican land. This is indigenous land that was stolen. And the black community has a longstanding presence here. You know, Harriet Tubman's farm was not too far away. The Rap Road uh, black community was not too far away. The um, Timbuktu community in the Adirondacks. Um, and so we don't we don't want to give away our power and our belonging in that narrative. You know, I'm not going to uh, diminish the struggles. It's definitely been a lot of really careful relationship building we've had to do. You know, there's Trump signs all around us and gun rights signs. Um, but we do have a, a positive relationship of mutual support with many of our neighbors. And that comes from trying to reach beyond, you know, politics and race and, and find the humanity in each other. Um, and that's been important to, to keep us safe and also to make our project successful. Um, in our last segment, you probably weren't listening, Leah. Uh, it was about the Mueller investigation, and we had a caller, Dina, in Manhattan who asked a good Mueller investigation question, and she also uh, happened to start the call by saying she was taking a break from a project she was doing, Cracking Walnuts, and that got a lot of response on, on Twitter. And normally we wouldn't take a caller for two segments in a row, but Dina's calling back with a question for you. And because some, so many people um, were intrigued by her Cracking Walnuts project um, that we're going to put Dina on the air again. Hi, Dina. Dina, are you there? Yes, I wanted to crack the nut for you. Yes, I had asked before Dina um, left, uh, I said, can you, well, can you crack a walnut for us on the air? But she had already hung up. So go ahead. Did, did you hear? I just cracked it. Did oh, you, you didn't hear? No, no. Do it. You have another one? Yeah, hold on. I was talking. That's a problem. There it is. Is it? Yes, so for, and you yes, have an actual question for our guest, right? Yes, of course. So, um, coming up on Martin Luther King weekend on Sunday night, the night before the day of MLK weekend. There's a holiday, um, the New Year's for trees, and we do a Seder, like on Passover, and we bless trees and fruits. I'm just wondering, being that it's MLK weekend, I'm having a dinner, what type of fruit tree is part of your heritage, and what type of nut do you usually use in your cooking or whatever that I can bring into my dinner as part of my Seder so I can explain to my guests, you know, it'll be like a dual message. Oh, my goodness. This question is making putting tears in my eyes. So I'm also Jewish um, and I will be helping with an MLK Tubishvat dinner in Harlem the evening of the 18th of January. And so I don't know where you're at, but I know there's tickets available um, and free tickets to give away also for that dinner. So it'd be so wonderful to celebrate um, with the black Jewish community and, and have you included. Um, wow. Tubishvat Sameach. That's amazing. Wow. Yes. Hug
Now the story of what may be this country's most divisive song. Dixie was the rallying cry of the Confederacy during the Civil War. For our series American Anthem, NPR's Bilal Qureshi crisscrossed the Mason-Dixon line to explore how Dixie became and endures as an anthem. And a warning, this story contains a racial slur. When my Pakistani immigrant parents chose Richmond, Virginia as our American hometown, they didn't realize the city had a pre-existing condition. Nostalgia for the lost cause of the Confederacy. Growing up, the ghosts of the Old South were everywhere. Rebel flags waving from pickup trucks and Confederate monuments along the city's main avenue. For four years, Richmond was the capital of the Confederate States of America. And if that country had an anthem, it was Dixie. But the song was born in the North, says historian Ed Ayers, who lives in Richmond. Dixie actually was only created in 1859 as a minstrel show in Ohio, which people tend to forget that minstrelsy was the most popular art form in the United States. White men in blackface, very often from the North, imagining happy enslaved people. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times there have not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, And parroting them at the same time that they are pretending to be them. So it's a very weird thing for people to have adopted as a national anthem of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was a pop-up nation, and its soldiers needed a song, says musician Brian Henderson. There weren't a whole lot of songs. There weren't anthems as such, and particularly about the South. And Dixie was a hot, popular hit. Henderson is at Gettysburg with the 2nd South Carolina String Band for the reenactment of the war's defining battle. After a long day of fighting, soldiers gather by candlelight under the big tent to close the night with Dixie. The tune is tremendously catchy. Whenever I hear it, I find myself humming it all day. It's really a wonderful song if you ignore all the racial and political overtones. Journalist Tony Horwitz is the author of Confederates in the Attic, a book in which he traced the enduring legacy of the lost cause. Horwitz says while Dixie can work inside the parameters of a reenactment, in real America, the song is tangled up with the history of racism and segregation. Dixie was part of the score of Birth of a Nation, the movie that helped revive the Ku Klux Klan. It was embraced by the segregationist Dixiecrats in the 1940s, and in the 1950s it was sung by white women protesting the integration of schools. And by the 1970s, it was on primetime, says historian Ed Ayers. Think of Dukes of Hazard; their horn plays the first notes of Dixie. But Dixie's biggest platform was the Southern Football Stadium, and nowhere more prominently than the University of Mississippi and its Pride of the South marching band. My name is Chris Presley, and I was the drum major for the Pride of the South marching band at Ole Miss. My first two years, I was playing Dixie with the marching band, and then my last two years, I was conducting the song. Chris Presley is African-American, and he says despite the song's divisive history, during games, Dixie could become a unifying anthem. Even though the song divided many people, I still saw everyone holding up their pom-poms, especially when we were winning during the song of Dixie. How, how many times would it be played in the course of a game? Oh, goodness. 
it really just depends on the football team during that game. You know, if we were winning, maybe 20 times. The band continued playing Dixie until two years ago when the school finally stopped using it. I have always loved the song Dixie. That's jazz singer Renee Marie. As a black person, I knew that it was like, no, you cannot, you cannot sing this song because it's Dixie, Renee. But I thought, this song is just about somebody who wishes they were back in their hometown in the South. I can identify with that. And so she sang it for the first time in Richmond. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. Marie says people were shocked, as if she'd used the most offensive racial slur. Oh, they sat back, you know, and folded their arms and crossed their legs like, what is this? Because honestly, Bilal, there are there are certain emblems of this society that are just taboo. You know, the Confederate flag is anathema to African Americans, and for good reason. The word nigger is anathema. And the song Dixie is like the tra- the trifecta, you know. But in her arrangement, Renee Marie merges Dixie with a song that Billie Holiday made famous about lynching. Southern trees bear a strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root That's the juxtaposition, isn't it? And both songs are representative of what it's like living in the South. But that old South is fading. And I asked Renee Marie if it would be better if one of its symbols, Dixie, was best forgotten. No, do not try to erase it. I would say look at it. Find out what's going on with your country. And stop thinking that it's post-anything. It's not post-anything. It's all still right here in your face. I mean... (laughs) to use the vernacular, but yes, it's right here. Don't be misled into thinking that everything is fine. Back in Gettysburg, as the reenactors take a moment to step out of the sepia-toned past to reflect on the present news cycle, there are nods of agreement from one of them, Joe Whitney. What's happening today is very similar to what happened back then. You know, you had the breakdown in civil behavior, the breakdown in people hearing the other side and understanding... And in a way, we want people to learn about this because history may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes, as they say. All of this history is a heavy burden to bear for a song that was intended to be nothing more than a jaunty pop tune. But Civil War historian Ed Ayers says Dixie could never be just a song. Once you live in the South, I've chosen to live here, you look around and you see the ghost of the past everywhere around us. So I can never hear Dixie as anything other than the song that has accrued all these meaning over so many generations. Ayers says even if Dixie was expunged, it will always be an anthem in some American hearts, confined but never forgotten, alive and electric as only anthems can be. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. Away down south in Dixie. Even though it seems we're being targeted, let that brother all hit it. Street dreamer, oh, mercy, mercy me. Ain't nothing out there for you. Ain't nothing out there for you.
Surviving R. Kelly is a lifetime docuseries focusing on sexual abuse allegations against the R&B artist. Accusers say Kelly ran a sex cult in Georgia and in Chicago. Kim Fox, the state's attorney in Cook County, Illinois, is encouraging other people to come forward and tell their stories. Please come forward. There is nothing that can be done to investigate these allegations without the cooperation of both victims and witnesses. Now, Lifetime has said that this docuseries has reached nearly 19 million total viewers on two different cable channels. And it is stirring a debate on social media over why there wasn't more outcry and more investigations sooner. We're joined by NPR TV critic Eric Dagens. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. So this is a lot of viewers, and it sounds like there are a lot of people across the country who are talking about this and tweeting about it and having conversations about it. I mean, what what are, what are you paying attention to? Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of conversation. First, we should point out um, that R. Kelly in the past has denied allegations like this. His representatives have pushed back. Uh, and, um, and so we want to make that sure. plain. Um, there's, there's been a tremendous amount of talk about this on social media, especially Lifetime is saying uh, that this uh, docu-series is one of its most talked about series on social media in the network's history. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the conversation centers on this idea of can you separate the artist from his music? There are fans out there who have very emotional, sentimental connections to R. Kelly hits like I Believe I Can Fly or Step in the Name of Love. And they're trying to hold on to that in the face of these horrific allegations. But there are, are the docu-series makes a very potent case that R. Kelly has used the wealth from these hits uh, to fuel this system that he's created in his life where he has uh, cut off women from their families. Uh, he has groomed young women for um, uh, uh, sexual uh, interactions and that he's um, also, um, you know, denied them food and things like that. Uh, so this is a, a really sort of emotional and turbulent conversation that's playing out in social media and it's been fascinating to see. It. I, I mean, these accusations have been out there, right? But it was television that has really caused a lot of, I mean, the investigating the outcry. Um, why? Well, Dream Hampton, uh, the executive producer of the series, talked to me. I interviewed her, and she talked about how, uh, for some people, seeing it on television makes a much bigger difference. Journalists have covered these allegations for many, many years. There's been a lot uh, of disclosures about this, and the women featured in the documentary, all of them have made their allegations in public before. But this docuseries brings together all of their um, uh, stories in, in one potent six-part series, and you just see story after story after story. And it really makes uh, a difference seeing them all together. We're also in this cultural moment, thanks to the Me Too movement, where we're looking back at past uh, allegations made against people like Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Bill Cosby, uh, Kevin Hart, and, and reevaluating them in the light of how we feel about believing women when they step forward and talk about being abused. And I think R. Kelly is in the, the center of, the, of that kind of attitude now. And, and there really is a racial dynamic to many of these conversations, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, this is about black women being believed. And Chance the Rapper did um, a very um, did an interview where he talked about how one reason why he may have not considered uh, these allegations and worked with R. Kelly, he regretted working for, with him, and he feels like uh, he may have ignored the the um, allegations of black women. And he's challenging himself to do better and his fans to do better. NPR's Eric Diggins. Thanks, Eric.
So the defense for R. Kelly, like you see people defending him. Uh-huh. It doesn't stop at, oh, we just, we're fans, we like his music, right? People also think that this is an attack on R. Kelly specifically because of his race. Oh, get out of here. So I, I want to touch on that because I thought that was really interesting because his victims are also black. So how is that an attack it's on the race? It's a hierarchy within our our world, honestly. Yes. So <clears throat> if you're a minority, you're put at its lower totem pole. If you're a woman, you're put at a no, lower well, totem even pole. Even lower. So imagine <laughs> if you're a minority woman. Yep. You're at the lowest of low. So yep. even other minorities, if you're the same uh, ethnic group, if they're like, hey, well, I got this on you as far as society is concerned, yep. I can continue to look down on you. People have this self-worth based off being able to look down on someone else or being able to do whatever they want to that other person. That's right. And then be backed by are, again, the public. And the public not standing up for you, people not mm-hmm. speaking out against you. Um, you know, it is it is a hierarchical realm in our society on what you look like and what your gender is. And unfortunately, some of us aren't entitled to the same rights others are, which is mm-hmm. why we continue to see these stories of certain members of society telling all these crazy lies or sexual assaults and they get six months in jail, like all, or not even six months in jail, but probation. And it's because there are two different justice systems, but there are also two, there are many different social systems. Right. And unfortunately, he is preying on the weakest member of society when it comes to social status. And it is very annoying when people say, oh, but we've had a black president. Oh, but you see how great Beyonce is, all these things. It's like, really? Are you really missing everything? They are because they they choose to be blind to it. Yes, but you know while I do agree that there's a we, and we talk about it on the show all the time. There's a two tier justice system. I mean you have people like the Stanford student who got caught raping someone behind a dumpster and yeah. he barely served any time behind bars for what he did. I believe it ended up being three months because he was let off early for good behavior. I mean that's out of control and of course that was a miscarriage of justice, but. That should not be, you know, what people point to to make excuses for someone else who's potentially committing the same crimes or even worse. Yep, the what about him? The what about him? The what about? The what about? You see it everywhere. You yes, see you it do. when it comes to politics, you see it when it comes to stories like this, and we need to stop treating situations that way yeah. because it leads to more injustice. Seriously. Instead well, of what about him? What about the victim? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yes. What about that person who deserves justice? Or what about his future victims mm-hmm. that are going to be hurt if you don't do something? It's well, it well, people is begin to start seeing if you have a reason to defend someone like this, ask yourself why. And I said this the other day when we talked about the Jasmine Barnes and when people are defending and be like, how dare you guys listen to this black victim? Why are you so upset with people listening to a victim? Um, is it because you share some views and actions of yep. the accused? And that makes you a bad person. Or is it that you want to continue to see it happen? It's because you don't like that person speaking out so much because that loudmouth is supposed to stay where they're supposed to stay That's beneath right. me. Yep. Either way, it's an ugly reality that you have to face. And we don't like to face our realities of who we really are. Well, see, again, the people who classify themselves as white are not happy with their appearance. Now they've taught us to be unhappy about our appearance. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii. And she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people, and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. 
And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. Law enforcement officials across the country have relied on DNA to help catch criminals for years. Now, a volunteer group is applying it in a different way. They are using DNA and genealogy to help identify unknown crime victims, so-called John and Jane Doe's. For member station WBOI in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Barb Angiano reports. In 1988, John Miller murdered eight-year-old April Tinsley in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Police at the scene recovered DNA samples, but they weren't able to do much with them back then. Fast forward to last spring when Fort Wayne investigators were finally able to process the collected DNA samples from a 30-year-old crime scene and find genetic matches to two brothers living near Fort Wayne. After an exact DNA match, they arrested and charged John Miller, who was convicted in December and is now serving an 80-year prison sentence. The technology that helped them find Miller is being used by genealogists to identify crime victims across the country. Margaret Press helped set up the group DNA Doe Project. She says her motivation came from helping adoptees find their birth parents. Because in both cases, the parents are not known or anything about the ancestry. And once you know the parents, you can figure out where the doe fits in the tree. Last year, her group helped police in Ohio identify Marcia Sossaman King, whose remains were found in a ditch nearly 40 years ago. You really need to look at all the ancestors and all the cousins in order to narrow down on the actual person. Working with law enforcement, DNA Doe was able to locate one of King's first cousins using a public database called GEDmatch. That's where people upload their DNA information in hopes of extending their family trees. Here's how it works. When you buy a DNA test kit like 23andMe or Ancestry, the companies also allow you to download your genetic code, which you can then upload to GEDmatch. GEDmatch gathers data from lots of DNA websites. Press says access to private databases like 23andMe or Ancestry would make the search process much quicker, but private databases are closed to law enforcement. Mark McKenna practices privacy law and teaches at the University of Notre Dame. He says those restrictions make sense. On the one hand, you get this kind of information has a lot of potentially positive uses, right? It lets you solve crimes, um, but there's always a, there are dark sides to all of these things. And, you know, so most people who work in the privacy area would say there are questions about, like, how do you collect the data in the first place? McKenna says right now people are enthralled with how easy this is to do. And searching databases is increasingly common for hints into the lives of John and Jane Doe's. So far, the group has helped identify six people that are among the thousands that go missing each year. In Steuben County, Indiana, not far from the Tinsley and King cases, Detective Chris Emmerich is heading an investigation to find the identity of a Jane Doe found in 1999. We get really hopeful. We're hoping that, hey, maybe we finally identified her. Maybe we can finally put this case to rest and get the family closure. Emmerich says his motivation comes from the thought that if she was his relative, he'd want to know what happened to her. For NPR News, I'm Barb Anguiano in Fort Wayne. Black babies cost less. Investigators say the murder of 70-year-old Jasmine Barnes may be a case of mistaken identity. 
As we've been reporting, Barnes was killed on December 30th when a shooter opened fire on the car she was riding in with her mother and three sisters. A funeral service will be held tomorrow. The suspect was initially described as a white man in his 40s driving a red pickup truck. That description sparked allegations that it was a racially motivated crime. But over the weekend, authorities arrested and charged Eric Black Jr., a 20-year-old African-American. And investigators are now saying they don't believe Jasmine's family was even the intended target of the shooting. Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez joins us now to discuss the latest. Sheriff Gonzalez, welcome back to Houston Matters. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, First, Sheriff Gonzalez, what can you tell us uh, about the suspect, Eric Black Jr.? Sure. Well, um... I do want to say that on uh, late Saturday, he was charged uh, with capital murder and death of uh, Jasmine. And uh, I've said that we are definitely in a much better place now than we were in the beginning, but much work remains to be done. And I've said consistently that this investigation will be guided by evidence and also by our follow-up work. And so when we're finally uh, complete with everything, then we'll see where that leads us. All right. But again, what can you tell us about him? Yeah, well, uh, he uh, is basically a a product of the East Harris County out there uh, near the vicinity where all this transpired. And uh, he's been charged. Uh, It's going through the court process and all of that. Uh, He uh, admitted to his role in the uh, incident, in the shooting of Jasmine. And, you know, I'm glad that, again, that we were able to make an arrest. How was he identified? Uh, We identified him through a tip that came in that was generated through Sean King at the national level. And uh, he forwarded that to me. And then I began working with my team. And then obviously we began to work to corroborate the information and develop additional information around that as well. And so that's where we're at today. You mentioned Sean King. This is a a journalist and activist, right? Correct. He uh, had been involved early on, um, you know, in terms of raising awareness uh, about this issue and, and, and raised it at a national level. Are there other suspects in the case at this time? Uh, At this point, uh, we do have uh, information that there uh, is a second suspect. Uh, We're still working through that. We still need to verify some information so no one else has been charged at this time. So as I said, we'll we'll remain focused and diligent in our work to make sure that we continue to pursue that. But we're not there yet. We're still uh, conducting additional investigation. Is there anyone else in custody in connection with this? At, at this point, I'm not going to comment on, on any potential suspects or their whereabouts or status or anything. What do we know about the motive here? Well, um, the information that we have is that um, they uh, were firing upon this vehicle. And uh, we still believe it's likely that it's a case of mistaken identity. Uh, but – as I've said before, we're going to make sure that until we finally conclude the case, then motive and all that will be known uh, much better. Uh, so at this time, we're still going to continue to do our follow-up. So so you're not saying absolutely for sure it was a case of mistaken identity, but it it appears at least at this moment that that's what transpired here, that they, that they identified the car thinking it was someone else's car. Yeah, at this point, again, we, we believe it could be a case of mistaken identity. It's likely, uh, but – be, what I mentioned earlier is we still have potentially a second individual uh, to be able to to work through, and so that'll shed more light on what actually transpired that tragic morning. The, the shooter was previously described as a white man in his forties driving a red pickup truck. Why do you think that initial description was incorrect? Well, it, 
again, uh, initially sunrise didn't happen till about seven fifteen or so. This happened about six forty five a.m. Uh, last Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and so you know it's early in the morning. Things happen very rapidly. You're talking about children in the car, so there's a lot of factors I can't speak to what they saw or didn't see exactly. All we could go is based on the information that we're given initially. And to their recollection, that is uh, what they remembered. It could be that they saw that individual at the traffic signal just before the area where the shooting took place. So, um, you know, in the mayhem and the chaos, maybe that's who they remembered. Uh, We do have information of a red truck being there at that traffic signal. We've captured on tape, which is what we've mentioned before. And so the pieces were falling together. That's who we needed to start focusing on initially. But again, it's based on where the evidence and follow-up eventually leads us. And as things change, then we, we update the information. When you say that's what they uh, initially reported, you're referring to the, the family members. The family members, members. correct. Right. Um, were there any other witnesses to this? Um, well, other than the, the parties uh, involved and, and there, we're still asking the public that if anybody may have witnessed this, if there was somebody in a truck that we now believe may have just been commuting uh, at the same time, then we'd like for them to come forward and, and report what they may have seen or heard at that time. So we've been out there canvassing quite a bit to it. It was early in the morning, so uh, there wasn't a lot of people on the roadway. So I don't know of any bystanders that were just there per se, but if we've missed a, a motorist or someone or, again, somebody that uh, sees something on their camera, then we would like to know. Are, are you still interested in pursuing the, the, that initial person that, that was described, the, the apparent driver of this truck? Yeah, we'd like to because for sure we know they were in cl- close proximity to where the shooting transpired. So that would be helpful to identify them um, one way or another, who they were, what they were doing there at that time. Again, it's likely that um, they were just maybe commuting and, and getting on the freeway there on the beltway. But we would still like to know what they were doing at that time of morning. This is Houston Matters. I'm Craig Cohen. I'm talking with Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez about the latest developments in the investigation into the murder of seven-year-old Jasmine Barnes. Roberto's on the line from the Museum District. Roberto, what's your question? Yeah, Sheriff Gonzalez, I really want you to address this question, which is an issue for me. I'm Hispanic, and so I don't have blue eyes, but I really resented, if that's the word, that the description of the man and the sketch with someone with blue eyes. Everyone I've spoken to, first thing, how do we know an eye color of any driver, much less a, uh, the situation in this situation? So I really, I understand a 14-year-old said that, but you need to vet before it goes out to the public because, as you know, it went viral because it was suspicion was, and I believe you yourself said suspicion. Uh, we don't really know, and I appreciate you saying that. But why did it go so far as to a sketch, uh, someone in his 40s, uh, blue eyes, etc.? Could you explain that to the public? Thank you. We all have a common enemy, whether he's in Georgia or Michigan, whether he's in California or New York, he's the same man. Blue eyes, blue eyes, blue eyes. Uh, Roberto, thank you for calling in. Initially, as an investigator, and I've done investigative work, you know, in, in my previous role before or one of my previous roles. And so I've done these type of investigations. Sometimes the information that comes forward initially, I mean, that's that's what you have to go by unless you have other descriptors or information simply because if you have somebody that's out there firing upon families or children, we need to identify those 
persons or, or in, individuals as quickly as possible. In this case, that description we had, you know, it's done with a professional, uh, Lewis Gibson from uh, the Houston Police Department that works on on long history of doing this for 30 plus years. She's a, a, a pro. And, you know, we have to take the information that's provided by by family members, by these teens that saw this. They're, they're at the end of the day, they're, they're still teenagers or they're, they're younger. Uh, they went through a lot of trauma that day. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, again, being that this yoke could have been at the light with them, perhaps they did get a closer look, uh, maybe right prior to the shooting. And so maybe they just got a very you know, just very close look. The the one of the family members seemed to have a really good recollection of 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 the face or what she remembers, and that's what we put out. It's just a composite sketch, and we that's why we always ask if anybody has information to still call it in. That's not uh, an image or anything. It's actual phone call of people calling in information, and so uh, we understand. We wish we had better information up front, and we could clearly identify without any any type of doubt who we're searching for. But unfortunately, we don't always have that in the very beginning, and we just have to develop the information as it becomes available. Do you regret putting out that sketch in the first place? I, I do not because, I mean, that's the information that's provided. That's the best. At that point, we, we still had not gotten to a point where we were uh, charging anyone, and so that's the information that we have. And, and you know, perhaps we could you know elaborate sometimes and be more forceful that it's just a sketch, but to me that's kind of obvious and just, you know, it, it's, it's an image of a person that we're kind of looking for and uh, there's nothing definite as far as tattoos or anything beyond that. So um, we don't regret it. We feel that we've done uh, – our investigators have done an extra job following up on stuff and we have to put the information that we're given. This case, of course, uh, found its way into the national spotlight very quickly. Uh is it your experience when you look at other cases, maybe that, that don't have necessarily that level of intensity of focus uh, among the public, but where a sketch is needed, where there are descriptions, where there are witnesses, uh, where the reality of who, who it ultimately ends up being the description isn't quite right? Is this something that happens on a routine basis? Uh, yes, it does happen. Many times it's it's on point. And, and again, there's been many examples where you, you see the composite with the person. I mean, I've had I've worked personally worked cases like that, and it's spot on. And sometimes it's a little bit off. And in this case, it was dark. Uh, it was uh, a, not a lot of pedestrians out there looking at what was going on. So the information is going to be a little bit, little bit more limited. So All it right. does happen. As you mentioned earlier, it's appearing at this point, like Jasmine's family was not the intended target of the shooting. How did those allegations, the national attention, the concern that it was a racially motivated shooting because the victim's family is black and because that initial report indicated the suspect may be white, how did all of that impact your investigation? Did it help or hinder the process to go through all that? Yeah, well, it's definitely – it's a different dimension to it because, you know, many cases obviously will never garner that level of, of national attention. And we certainly weren't anticipating that at, at you know, the first moment. I will add, though, and I want to be very clear about this, and from the very first moment in communicating my team, beyond – we. Be, as the scene was about to be worked, I conveyed to my team to dedicate every resource and to make sure that we did everything we could to find the perpetrator or perpetrators because this was a child we were talking about. 
and we wanted to make sure that we uh, located the, the individuals responsible for this. So it, it adds a different dimension simply because you have a national dialogue on this and, and a lot of other narratives that are forming, a lot of speculation. So it just elevates everything to a higher level. <clears throat> but we, at the end of the day, have to be professionals, cut through the noise some, and kind of focus on the job at hand. And that's what our investigators have done. They continue to do that. They're the consummate professionals, and we, we uh, appreciate the work that they've done to get us to this point. Centoya, three. Her name is Centoya Brown, and she has spent half her life in prison. Why? Because she shot and killed a man when she was 16 years old. Why? Because the man she killed was her pimp who raped her, exploited her, and planned to sell her like a loaf of bread. Stars such as the popular singer Rihanna have raised their voices in her defense. In an Instagram posting, Rihanna wrote, quote, Imagine at the age of 16 being sex trafficked by a pimp named Cutthroat. After days of being repeatedly drugged and raped by different men, you were purchased by a 43-year-old child predator who took you to his home to use you for sex, unquote. Centoya gathered her will, took his gun, and shot him. She was certified as an adult at the tender age of 16 and sentenced to 60 years in prison. Over half a million people signed a petition demanding her freedom. And just a few days ago, Centoya Brown had her sentence commuted to time served by Tennessee's governor. Centoya Brown, now an adult woman of 32 years, is now free. Free to leave a lifetime of nightmares. Free to fly from imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Saying that black men and boys die does little to capture the causes that extinguish their lives. This reporting requires no academic engagement. It simply requires the interpretation of the black male lives lost. Often these deaths are not thought to be of the kinds important enough to learn more about. Black male deaths are normalized. We already know they happen constantly in our society, so they need not be analyzed. Because black males are known to die, we need not make them a subject of study. There is no need to divert theoretical resources to the facticity of their demise. Attempting to do so, to study black males as affected by particular ecological or ideological forces is reduced to the, oh, here we go again, syndrome. For the second time in less than two years, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is investigating a death at the West Hollywood apartment of a prominent political donor named Ed Buck. You may not know the name, but Buck is active in the Democratic Party and has raised a lot of money for various Democratic candidates and issues. Buck is white. Both of the men found dead in his apartment are black. Now civil rights activists say Buck's status as a wealthy white man could be shielding him from prosecution. We're joined now by reporter Benjamin Gottlieb. He's been covering the story for member station KCRW in Los Angeles. Ben, thanks for being here. 
You're welcome. What can you tell us about how these men died? Well, we know a lot more about the first death. Back in 2017, Jamel Moore, a 26-year-old black man, died of a crystal meth overdose. He was found lying unresponsive with drug paraphernalia all around him at Buck's apartment in West Hollywood. And Mr. Buck was there at the time when first responders arrived. The second man is 55-year-old Timothy Dean of West Hollywood. He died earlier this week. Now, there's no confirmation yet as to what caused his death, but investigators are also looking into whether or not drugs played a role. And do we know if Buck was there when the second man died? He was there, yes. He was. So civil rights leaders are now getting involved. What's their message? What are they arguing? Well, they want to see him in handcuffs, and this really stems from the first case. Uh, there were reports that Moore blamed his addiction, this is the first gentleman, blamed his addiction to drugs on Buck, and that Buck introduced him to meth. Now, it's important to point out that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department did investigate this last year, but the county DA's office decided that there was not enough evidence to charge Buck. However, civil rights activists believed Buck should have been held responsible for the first death, and the second death has amplified those calls. There was a rally outside of Buck's home this week. Another is planned for later this evening. Here's Jasmine Canick. She's one of the organizers. In order for there to be justice, you know, Ed Buck would need to be arrested and prosecuted and convicted. And Kanick has also applied that Buck has not faced charges, and many feel this way in the community, has not faced charges because of his race and his wealth. And I should mention, Buck is a known entity here in Los Angeles, especially in the LGBTQ community. Hmm. So he's got a really high profile. Um, has, has Buck himself or his attorneys, have they made any public statements at this point? Well, Buck's attorney is a man named Seymour Amster, and he described Moore's death as a tragedy, but said that Buck had nothing to do with it. As for the death of Timothy Dean this week, Amster told reporters that his client is innocent. This is not a situation where Mr. Buck has caused the death. This is a situation where Mr. Buck has had longtime friends who unfortunately do not handle their life well. And that's really the key question here. Are these deaths accidental or did Buck have some role in them? Huh. So setting aside any criminal wrongdoing, which is still to be decided, these cases have really focused attention on the drug problem in West Hollywood, right? Absolutely. It's a major problem in West Hollywood. Uh, we at KCRW spoke at length with the mayor this week, and he confirmed it's a big problem and that there's a very large community in recovery in West Hollywood. So when you add all those factors together, it makes things a lot less clear. Benjamin Gottlieb, reporter with our member station, KCRW, who's been following this case. Uh, ben, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Anytime. And uh, I can save it for the mall, but uh, just uh, to let know that uh, this this guy is actually meaning the white male racist suspect governor also has uh, pardoned the uh, the Groveland Four, uh, which is uh, something that I can you know, you, you can you can do your research and, and report that tomorrow, actually. Now at six, a pardon more than 60 years overdue for the Groveland Four. The young black men were wrongfully accused of raping a white woman, then arrested and beaten. One of them killed. He was accused, put in jail, tortured for something that he did not do. Tonight, at long last, their names are finally cleared. 
Today's hearing was decades overdue to those young men and their families. Good evening, I'm Greg Warman. And I'm Martha Sagaski. Channel 9's Karen Parks joins us live in the studio. And Karen, this was a very emotional day for people on both sides of this case. Martha, family members of the Groveland Four spoke today. We heard from the alleged victim, Norma Paget. We also heard from Gilbert King, the author of Devil in the Grove, which tells the story of racial injustice in Lake County decades ago. So is there a motion to approve the pardon? So moved. It's a day that may allow the Groveland Four to finally rest in peace. In 1949, four young black men, Ernest Thomas, Charles Greenlee, Walter Irvin, and Samuel Shepard, were powerless. <coughs> they were powerless to defend themselves from the brutality of a Lake County Sheriff and his deputies. Vindication for the four men, now dead, accused of raping a 17-year-old white woman nearly 70 years ago outside of Groveland. Gilbert King documented the racial injustice in his book, The Devil in the Grove. There was manufactured evidence, perjury, witnesses being hidden from the defense, and prosecutorial misconduct that was rampant throughout this case. The alleged victim, Norma Paget, also spoke at today's hearing. I'm begging y'all not to give him pardon because they done. Family members of the Groveland Four testified today as well. My father was incarcerated in police custody at the time that the act uh, is said to have happened. It never happened, Miss Paget. Family, it never happened. You all are liars. But Paget stuck to her story. I know she called me a liar, but I'm not no liar. He was clearly convicted by a person who merely said that he did it. And at the climate of the time, of those times, that's all they needed. But in the end. While this act cannot right the wrongs done to them many years ago, I hope that, that it will bring peace to their families and to their communities. Now, a decision on this case has been brewing for decades. The former lieutenant governor, Carlos Lopez Cantera, who served under Governor Rick Scott, tweeted today, well done by the Florida cabinet. Should have happened sooner. Live here in the studio, Karen Parks, Channel 9 Eyewitness News. Joining us is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's Puzzle Master. Good morning, Will. Good morning, Leila. So as we've noted, your day job is as puzzle editor of the New York Times. And before we get started today, we need to acknowledge a controversy spurred by the New York Times crossword this past week. One of the answers was a word that is most commonly used as a racial slur. We're not going to repeat it here. The Times has issued an apology saying, quote, Tuesday's crossword puzzle included an entry that was offensive and hurtful. It is simply not acceptable in the New York Times crossword, and we apologize for including it. That's right. It was a mistake to include that answer. It is indeed offensive, and I personally apologize. Well, I expect our listeners will appreciate the apology, Will. And now... Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, <clears throat> Saturday, January 12, 2019. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in dial-in if you have thoughts observations suggestions questions the number 641-715-3640 the code 564-943-POUND 
press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Did you hear the fuss the caller made about the suspected shooter in the Jasmine Barnes killing, the sketch being of a blue-eyed white man? Almost, I almost went with, can never be incorrect with Minister Malcolm X, but I almost went with Dr. Welsing's segment about uh, when she said she would be... A millionaire, maybe a billionaire, if she had those three pills that could get you uh, blue eyes, blonde hair, white skin. She could get those three pills. System of white supremacy. Uh, Before we get to folks that have questions, comments, thoughts on the segments that we heard. Ten years of the cows. I did not want to do anything really for the uh, cow's anniversary. I'm not into celebrations. I don't celebrate uh, anything. Uh, I went to a birthday party a year ago for a one-year-old. I'm still traumatized. And after that, said I'm not doing any more birthday parties, uh, my own or anybody else's. Uh, I'm not about celebrating. Replace white supremacy with justice. Then we can, you know, have a shindig. However, yoga did change things substantially. I remember about this time last year being asked, wow, is it really going to be 10 years anniversary next year, 2019? I said, yep. They said, are you going to do, you know, a big party or try to do something? I said, absolutely not. That's repulsive. It came up again. I was asked. It was, oh, wow, you could do a yoga retreat completely different perspective uh, about the whole thing. So yoga, I think, can be very, very helpful for victims of white supremacy, especially black people in terms of stress reduction, feeling better, exercise, just so many things. Uh, I think it can be very helpful. Uh, Not Certainly not able, uh, not a panacea. It's not going to solve everything. I don't think it'll end racism, but I think it can be helpful as we go about the process, uh, this business. Anyway, so the 10-year anniversary cows yoga retreat should be February 21 through February 24. Uh, Should be in Tennessee. Uh, We'll have all of the precise details, but I can give at least the general rundown. Uh, It should include, once we get the pricing and everything together, uh, it will include room and board. Uh, All you'll have to do is get your transportation there. I know we have some cows listeners in Tennessee, so I mean, I guess this could be a a walk, depending on how close it is or, you know, whatever, carpool, fly, train, But Tennessee, um, February 21 to February 24, that's a Thursday, uh, Thursday evening through Sunday afternoon on the 24th. 
Uh, it will be plant-based. Uh, I said room and board. Meals will be included. It will be plant-based. That means no ribs, bacon, hamburgers, chitlins, milk, anything else, cheese, plant-based meals Thursday through Sunday. This is one I spoke with Satya X uh, this past weekend. She was so helpful. She was a guest on the program about this time last year, yoga. She does the Black Women's Retreat, Yoga Retreat down in Costa Rica. Uh, a lot of guests re- or a lot of listeners really appreciated hearing from her uh, last year, but she was so helpful. We spoke for about an hour and she said to really make, make sure that that is stressed so that people have correct expectations about the diet because she said she's had problems with that. Her retreat is plant-based. Uh, all the meals are included and it's all plant-based. She said to make sure that people know so that they don't get there. And, what? We're not having coon. I want chick. You can, you know, eliminate all of that from the beginning because, and I've seen that people that are accustomed, you know, food is a very personal thing. So people can get upset about that just so to make sure that people know it's plant-based, no chicken, no pork, no beef, no fish, plant-based diet, Thursday through Sunday. So really, you would only really have to be plant-based Friday and Saturday. On Thursday, uh, it we won't be starting things until that evening. So, I mean, you could go to McDonald's, you can get chicken nuggets, you can do all of that. Go to the Cheesecake Factory and do it up, right, that Thursday, and then you'll be good. So, you really would only have to get through Friday and Saturday, and then we'll be done Sunday afternoon. You can immediately find the nearest KFC or whatever else, and, oh, I can't believe it. They starved us. Give me, you know, five cheeseburgers, and you'll be good to go. So, you really only need to be good for two days, Friday and Saturday. Yoga every day of the retreat. This is replenishing. That was another one that Satya X really emphasized that this is not a party. Recognizing the 10 year anniversary of the cows, whoopee, but this is not a party. This is not. We are coming to uh, to Tennessee to turn up and hook up and we're going to have speed dating and, you know, we're doing Patron shots uh, with gut. No, that's not it at all. Uh, this is replenishing, some learning, do some healing, hopefully. Uh, as they use the term network, there would presumably be other cows listeners around from different parts uh, of the plantation. So you can network and exchange views, as they say, about lots of things counter racist suggestions, fitness. Uh, healthy eating, lots of things uh, could be exchanged. But being very clear that this is not a party. This is relax, replenish, do some yoga, plant-based foods, workshops included. But yoga is every day. The yoga is mandatory. There's no spectating. Uh, Someone asked about that in the questionnaire that I sent out about this months ago. Uh, Can we spectate for the yoga classes? They do not have spectators at yoga classes. Uh, I would not feel comfortable as a teacher or as a practitioner with spectators just to ooh and ah and look to see if I, you know, fell off balance and fell on my face or whatever else. Uh, So the yoga is included uh, in the package and we're doing two yoga sessions a day. Uh, And if you're there, you are participating in the yoga. You're not just in the yoga room just to watch and, you know. I hope he falls, or I hope someone falls so I can giggle. 
Uh, it's not going to be anything super intense. The yoga will, it'll be a good workout. Hopefully it'll be something where you'll feel like you got a good workout for the morning uh, session, the evening that will be relaxed. Yin yoga, as they say, something to relax, calm down, get ready to hopefully get quality rest for the time that we are there. But two sessions of yoga, again, if we have newer listeners, I'm not someone who just started doing yoga two days ago, even though I've only been practicing a year. I am, according to White's, 200 hours certified, prenatal certified. I already have, I think, 25, 30 hours towards my 300 hour certification. So I did not just watch a few YouTube videos and decide to start doing yoga. I have my certificates if anyone needs to see them. Uh, but Thursday, February 21st through Sunday, February 24, uh, we should have some other offerings while we are there. Free time as well for folks to explore and romp around. Uh, if you have not been to this part of the United States, as they say, there will be a pamphlet forthcoming with more details, all of the data, an exact itinerary uh, hour to hour for all four days, February 21 through February 24. Uh, I will send out an email with the pamphlet to all of the folks who have emailed me about the Cows Yoga Retreat. If you're interested, you can just email untiljustice at gmail.com and I will include you with the pamphlet. Should answer hopefully all of your questions. And then if you have additional questions, you can send an email. But I'm super excited looking forward to it healthy eating do some yoga do some workshops recover some of the or recount some of the history of how all of this came to be and uh, hopefully feel great after our four days no name calling uh, hopefully that would go without saying but no name calling no name calling after i think satya did say that was another one unfortunately it was it was very sobering she was very helpful but it was very sobering and her retreat is exclusively black females and she said it's very important she has a code of conduct she said the anti-blackness is a major problem she said it a few times actually she emphasized it she said you would be amazed at some of the things that we can say to each other as a result of the brain trashing we have endured in the system of white supremacy so to not be amazed she said have a code of conduct and emphasize that ahead of the event no name calling no anti-blackness uh, minimize contact <laughs> at, at, at best minimize contact if you find out you know you're not getting along with other folks that are there but no name calling trying to observe counter racist codification during those four days more details to come next we are listener supported counter racist radio and have been for a decade listeners have kept us on 2009 2000 19. You can visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Address again racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. Enormous gratitude to all of the listeners who have kept us on for 10 years. Hopefully worthy of your time and energy, providing accurate information about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be white. 
If you are not into PayPal, you can drop an email and we can get you a physical mailing address. Uh, also, you can support via the Amazon wish list. It is linked at my blog. Uh, you can just go to Amazon Gus T. Renegade. Uh, you can view the wish list again. Gigantic thanks to all of the investors who have supported us for a decade. I hope we have been worthy of the support. Next, uh, I think last week I was talking about diet, health. I've been vegan for over a year now. Not going to claim to be an expert on uh, diet or anything else. However, I will say, I think it was said that you could eat at McDonald's and still be fit and, and look great, be in, in tremendous shape. That that might be true. I've seen some folks that can do it before. I, I'm not sure that eating at McDonald's would be long-term goal of health. I can put health concerns aside for the moment in terms of talking about, you know, eating organic beets versus chicken McNuggets. Let's put that to the side for a moment. I think on this program, one thing that Gusty has emphasized over that decade is racists practice a lot of terrorism in the food service industry. And I think we've had a lot of reports over the past decade of racist Domino's employees putting nigger on the receipt, racist employees at, at Papa John's and other whole oh, Papa John's founder. We've had so many of these incidents from all over the world. I do think a major point of emphasis has been let's not eat out. We're even putting aside how many times they take the uh, Instagram shots of the subway employee with his penis on the freshly baked cookies. We'll just, you know, put that. We won't even think about that. We're just, you know. I think we have emphasized, let's try not to eat out if we can. Let's try as best we can to keep racists from having direct ability to terrorize what we are going to be putting uh, in our mouths. They do a lot of that in a variety of ways, but at least we can minimize that as, as much as we can. I think that's something that we've emphasized here, according to counter-racist logic. Did want to make sure I got that in. Next up. <clears throat> The R. Kelly thing, I'm so, what would be a good word? Repulsed? Disgusted? I have to think on it. I have to think on it. That this is even a subject. The Miami International Airport is closed down this weekend. How many people are being impacted by that? That's not. <laughs> Lifetime's not doing a docuseries on that this week. Uh, the Jasmine Barnes situation. And what happened there? Let's get the update on that. I know they got a lot of attention last week, but that faded, you know, dramatically. We got R. Kelly to talk about. Even last week, people were talking about R. Kelly last week. They weren't even talking about Jasmine Barnes. I'm so disgusted, repulsed uh, that whites are so skillfully able to direct attention wherever they want. Nobody was talking about R. Kelly, at least not to this extent. Uh, you know, just three weeks ago, a month ago. Now, oh, forget Colin Kaepernick, forget Christmas and all that. It is R. Kelly. Mute him. Get him off a of spot. Whites are phenomenal at this. A six-part documentary. He got the O.J. Simpson. That is a metaphor. Excuse me. O.J. Simpson got that eight-hour documentary on ESPN, and he got uh, the TV series, I think, a year before that. We can spend tons of time. Black Miss Andrew, the man not, 
raping no good black males. Yes, let's have as much content about that as we possibly can. I'm disgusting and I'm especially disgusted because unless I'm misinformed, R. Kelly is still not charged with anything. That alone in the system, I think they said in the segment, there weren't really any new allegations in the docuseries. It's just putting them all together in a dramatic fashion for hours of television viewing. Millions, probably over the 30 million now. He hasn't been charged with anything, not in handcuffs. We're in a system of white supremacy where whites display extraordinary ease caging black people for any reason or no reason at all. Khalif Browder, children, Tamir Rice, anybody, anybody, no problem at all. Bill Cosby, didn't Michael Jackson almost end up? I lived in California when Michael Jackson was on trial. They had in the local newspaper, Michael Jackson, if convicted, will be in the same cell as the late, great Charlie Manson. I remember reading that in 2005. They are talking about R. Kelly as though he has so much black male privilege that we don't know what to do with him. Best we can do is hope Lifetime can give us a great documentary and get some support. And maybe we'll maybe we'll drum up enough support that we can go after him. But wow, that R. Kelly, man, we just can't we just can't do anything about. Are you serious? In Chicago, of all places, unless I'm misinformed, Mr. R. Kelly in the Chicago area where we had John Burge, where they took pride in terrorizing black males specifically for decades, putting electrical cow prods on their testicles. This is in the Chicago public school system. It's mandatory. They teach this to the, to the Chicago children and use that language, terrorism. In this Chicago, we couldn't do anything about R. Kelly? Really? That is amazing. If that is the case, and it might not be, all of this could just be a lie. But if it is true, in my opinion, the people that are most to blame for this, at this point, it would not be R. Kelly. It would be the white people that have allowed this for 20 years. That would be the focus of the documentary. Not R. Kelly. If he did do this, and again, he hasn't even been charged. He might be totally innocent. Innocent until proven guilty. That was what was said, right? But if he did, at this point, it would be about, let's line up all of the whites that are responsible for this because you lock up niggers all the time. If he did do this, this is your fault. Moving forward, can't even move forward. I find this really disgraceful because whites, they do a great job making it seem like they care about some niggers some of the time. That's not the case at all. They can make it seem like they care about black females. No, they don't. They didn't even report Daniel Holtzclaw. Remember that, the audacity. They didn't even talk about Daniel Holtzclaw. You had a raping police officer, not accusations and rumor and innuendo. Oh, no, convicted serial rapist. And they didn't talk about that at all. But we're going to talk about R. Kelly for 20 years. They brought out on NPR Eric Deggins to talk about this. Eric Deggins is not a sophisticated political commentary. Uh, comment. Peter. Eric Deggins is a victim of racism, black male who is listed as their television analyst. That right there lets me know a lot about what NPR thinks about all of this about R. Kelly. This is not serious dialogue that we're going to investigate as, wow, sexual predators and we are concerned about females. This sounds like what are the niggers watching on television and talking about on Twitter? That's what this sounds like. The Young Turks reinforced that opinion 
during their segment, Sink didn't even come out in the segment. I didn't play the entire segment, which was about 10 minutes from the Young Turks, where they talked about R. Kelly. Uh, I played about the last three or four minutes. Sink wasn't even on. He's the host, the founder of the Young Turks, unless I'm mistaken. He wasn't even on the segment. They had a black male and a black female come out and do, oh, yeah, we got patriarchy and hierarchy and the black males look down on everybody that they are on top of. That's what they do. Again, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, what did we just finish? The man, not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. They get in that three minute segment. You heard almost every major talking point from the book. The assumption black male privilege. R. Kelly being used to illustrate, yes, black male privilege in Chicago, no less, where black males, black males specifically being targeted for terrorism in Chicago for decades with no recourse. But there's black male privilege. And the example is Robert Kelly. And the last thing I'll say on that, they mentioned Eric Deggins, black male victim of racism. They mentioned Me Too, C.K. Lewis, Kevin Spacey, Bill Cosby, Kevin Hart. Bill Cosby's in jail. Kevin Spacey just did a comeback video this week where he was talking and reaching out to his fans. I'm still a white man. I may have done some wrong things. Let's for what is it? Let's forget. I'm sorry. My bad. Let's let's get a reset, as they say, and move on. They might even reboot House of Cards and put him back in. Louis C.K. The same thing. He just I just saw a segment. He was out insulting the Parkland students. He's not been arrested. He's not been charged. His career didn't even get a stop. He Paul he took a vacation and is right back practicing racism and insulting anyone he pleases. Not the case with Bill Cosby. Not the case with R. Kelly. They didn't do a six-hour documentary on Louis C.K. or Kevin Spacey or any of these other white guys. Bill Cosby in prison. Kevin Hart still having to apologize. Black miss. And that, that is your black male privilege. I'll stop there. Uh, the segment... This will go right to the no metaphors for the compensatory call in the segment where they were talking about the black child being terrorized by the whites uh, at the hockey rink. They were making monkey noises and all his father, victim of racism. He did at least make an effort to talk to his child about racism so he wouldn't be surprised. That is fantastic. But he did use the metaphor of having to toughen your skin. I don't know what that means in a system of racism, white supremacy. No idea at all. If it generally is used to suggest somehow that racism will be practiced, you will be mistreated. So you will need to learn how to accept this and not be sad about this, not be easily hurt about this. That's often the way I hear it described, but that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem logical to me because sometimes the mistreatment is lethal. I don't know how you're not supposed to, you know, how do you toughen one's skin if you're going to be subjected to lethal violence? Rhetorical question. No metaphors for the compensatory call in. Uh, If you could speak directly, explicitly to what it is you want to say, that would be super appreciated. Racists frequently employ metaphors to be willfully deceptive. Uh, We've been exposed to that for a long time, myself included. Uh, Also, many victims of racism, we are still learning 
And as such, sometimes we don't have logic to explain what we want to say, and we will substitute a comparison or analogy of some sort. If we could avoid that and just be direct to what we want to say, I would appreciate it. I will prompt about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello, everyone. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Gus. I want to say good congratulations on your decade. I didn't realize you were around um, that long until a couple months ago. So, um, thank you. I've learned a lot. Um, and because of this show, I'm also encouraging you to buy um, Mr. Fuller's book, which is very, very um, important in my life right now. Um, I sent a couple emails about the retreat, but I don't know if you got them because I would like to go. So when you get a chance, please put your inbox and send me the details. Um, you mentioned uh, nigger being written on the receipt, and it made me think of, I think it was last year or a year and a half ago, one of the Neville brothers' niece, which is a, a very famous family in New Orleans, um, a musical family. Um, their niece went to a restaurant, and the waiter wrote um, something with that word in, involved on the receipt, and gave it to her, not realizing she who she was. So wow to that. Um, in regard to Jasmine, uh, rest in peace. My question is, how I, I don't understand how mistaken identity would apply to this situation because my understanding is mistaken identity is when the person that was actually being looked for looks quite similar to the person that they found. And my understanding is a black man and a white man can't look alike, especially, you know, when, when the guy that was, the gentleman that were arrested are very highly melanated and they are not considered, quote, unquote, light-skinned like the person that was originally uh, sketched out. So I'm almost, in my mind, I I am a conspiracy theorist. I almost feel like this may be some kind of, I don't know, I think think it may be a trick. It could be, could be not, but that's my stance on that in regard to R. Kelly. Um, I had a conversation with a friend in which she was watching the um, documentary series at Nauseam. And she did tell me this, which I found disturbing. She said in Chicago, that's where she is, she said it was known that he went around to the high school and basically solicited for uh, high school girls, which is incorrect behavior when it comes to codification. Um, it adds to sexual confusion 
yet at the same time, I inquired with her. I said, how is it doing something constructive for the victims at this point, um, so-called victims, other than them showcasing black women being and acting lasciviously for one reason or another, and black men, yet again, being accused of sexual or vile crimes. And I also asked her, since when are white people or white people considered Jews who run media, since when are they interested in seeking justice for for raped black women? I, I don't know any, I don't have a recollection of that. And also, Chicago is um, very notorious for other um, criminals that they do not bring up anymore too much. When I did live in um, Chicago after the storm, I found out that Ed Gian lived in a town named Waukegan and that the house still stands. Um, yeah, uh, so there's that. The farm food segment made me think of a conversation I had today about nutrition with an older lady. She said her leg was hurting her really bad. And I asked her what about it was hurting. She said um, the muscle, it just feels real tight like I'm getting a Charlie horse. And I told her, you're you're dehydrated and you, you've got to up your water and you know, we talked about it some more, uh, that and other things. And it just reminded me how when I go into the schools and I teach, whenever there's no lesson plan and I'm able to deviate, I go over nutrition with the children and explain to them that food is medicine. And if you take in the proper food and, and water, that you'll have a longer life. and your brain will function better. And a lot of the kids say, why doesn't anybody else tell us this? And I have to say, I don't know, but I'm here and I'm telling you. And also I realized that with adults, a lot of adults have gone through life not understanding the same premise that food is medicine. You must drink water in order for your body to function because you know, basically when a person gets a Charlie horse, it's the body pulling water from muscles in order to keep the organs hydrated. Um, you know, so it, it's bad. It, it means you're severely dehydrated if you um, start getting Charlie horses and, and muscle cramps. And the last thing I wanted to share, word masters. Um, and I know I mentioned on the compensation, I'm sorry, the workplace racism, you know, that white people, they understand the value of, or they understand how important it is to understand and speak Spanish, yet at the same time, make fun of people that speak Spanish, calling them beaners. But they will master, they're planning on mastering that language by, you know, having these immersion, immersion classes in the schools for their children to be bilingual. And uh, the second part of that, as far as word mastery, I taught a fifth grade class and 
was basically telling the kids, hey, you really need to master this language that you say is your native language that you speak and write and read. Because I saw a movie not too long ago where um, a man had a company for payday loans and he was able to deceive people into paying uh, three or 400 times what the original loan was because of uh, the words he used in the contract. And a young fifth grader, white male, said, well, you know, what he did, um, there's nothing wrong with that. I said, why is there nothing wrong with that? And he said, well, it's not on them if they don't understand what was in the contract. That just means, you know, uh, he was just able to get away with it. It's, it's not deceit. It's just they, they don't understand it, so he can do it. So I said, well, just because you can do it, number one, doesn't make it right. And then I said, apparently something was incorrect about it because he was uh, tried by the Federal Trade Commission and he's in jail or he's in prison for at least a decade. And so with that, he didn't have a retort. And I hope that proved a point to him, maybe or maybe not. Only time will tell. And that's all I have to share. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Gus. Congratulations. And I'll meet the line. Yes, ma'am. I will make sure you are included with the pamphlet, with all of the details. If it doesn't cover your inquiry or query, uh, drop me another email. But yes, I will make sure you are included when the pamphlet goes out. Uh, other folks dialed in. If you have comments, questions, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, greetings, callers, listeners, and um, greetings, Gus, and congratulations again. Um, you know, you wouldn't pretty much want that to be in that to be in the situation of celebrating ten years of having to do it, do this, but. Under the circumstances that we live under, it's unfortunately greatly necessary and greatly needed. Um, I'd like to first to start off with the first caller. Excellent information, by the way, on our water. Um, just very simple, basic, but it often goes missed in our in our in our. Um, as non-white people, we really don't drink enough water. We tend to drink a lot of sugary drinks. Uh, so that's great information. Passing that on to the children. Um, I think I'll, oh, by the way, the only thing I would say is I, I wouldn't consider you, I, what you stated earlier, calling, saying you may see yourself as somewhat a conspiracy theorist. I wouldn't even consider myself that. I think that what you were saying and speaking about is completely logical. So I, I wouldn't even do that. Uh, I think you're, you might do yourself a disservice by even saying that because I've, I've had people call me the same and then put me under the same context of radical um, Imhotep, quote unquote, nigger, um, a, a bunch of names that I think are, they have a certain connotation with them that don't go positively um, across to most people in the general so called society. Um, just wanted to get that across. Um, but great, great, um, great words. Uh, first off, the wrestler, the commentary in regards to the, the referee, the first instance of, of him using that racial slur was used around some um, some actual dinner, I believe, that he was having with other referees. And one person reported it, and he was suspended. 
I think at that point, knowing that he used that term, uh, that phrase, nigger, which, which was, which was uh, reported what he said, I think at that point, he should have already been suspended. He should have been fired. It should have been a scenario where he shouldn't even been in the position to even cut that young man's hair. And, and that's what's so frustrating about the situation. So it's another indication of how whites, when they get around each other, have these conversations, knowing somebody within that circle, probably most of them, say racial slurs and speak negative about non-white people on a consistent basis, and they don't call out each other. They don't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to do his refereeing for such an extended period of time. Um, <clears throat> there should be like a lawsuit against the New Jersey Inter- Interscholastic Athletic Association for allowing him to ref and even do what he did. And also, there should be some. There should be some kind of. Um, some could be something as far as charges pressed against him for cutting the young man's hair. Like he should face some kind of repercussions for this rather than just being fired. That's just the way I see it. Uh, Nina Simone, good to hear her getting some credit. Um, but sadly, of course, it's, it's way past due. Um, a while ago, Netflix did a documentary on her life. I, I was filled with a lot of black misandry, um, almost, almost depicted her as um, some has-been civil rights singer. Like, it was very difficult to watch, um, but there were still some tidbits of information in there. I, I don't know if anybody would feel comfortable watching the whole thing, though. I, I didn't because I haven't gone back to look at it at all. Um, the players' hockey team, of course, they should, should be suspended. The coach as well. All The whole that whole scenario is very similar to the wrestling scenario. And I feel that there should be harsher things coming down. If we're really talking about getting justice and dealing with this issue of white supremacy. And if people really wanted to correct this behavior in the society. Um, But I'm glad the father did have that conversation at least. Um, The NYC farming, uh, really great to hear that. I'm here in NYC and um, I'll be looking into that as well. Farming While Black sounds like a good book to pick up. Um, <coughs> and um, I just visited the website. There are some, they do deliver, actually, pretty much around the year. So I'm going to take a look at that and see how that works out. Um, Dixieland, uh, it's a really great song. If you ignore the racial overtones, was something that the uh, the gentleman that was speaking said. I, I wasn't sure who, who made that indication, if it was the interview or the person being interviewed. Um, it's sad that that this, it's sad almost that they brought the uh, black female out and had her almost like, Mr. Malcolm X spoke about this, uh, about how they would have one hand, uh, one non-white, non-white person speaking about an issue um, encountering racism, and then they go back and ask another non-white person, and they would give a completely opposite perspective on it. And it's almost like it's very deliberate, and it's a very good way to cause confusion and conflict between two people within the same group who have the same enemy. Um, and it's very evident within that interview. Um, R. Kelly, very uh, frustrating. I think you pretty much summed most of that up already. 
though, but um, I would say this, and this is something that doesn't get spoken about, is that if we're really going to address R. Kelly and the issues that he that that we're, we're seeing that he's done, um, ultimately what needs to be done is to look into how it even transpired, if that's really the case. And then you're going to have to deal with the fact that he was molested as a young a young child as well by his sister. And then if you're going to deal with that, then you're going to have to address what Dr. Tommy Curry spoke about in regards to rape among young black boys. And then you're going to have to deal with the historic premise where that comes from, which is dealing with rape among the black community by our soap, by white people, slave owners at, during that time and ever, and how it's continued. And, and basically, <laughs> basically, yeah, I, I can't use the word, I shouldn't say infected, but it's basically caused a lot of damage within our community up until this day. Um, Jasmine, um, the, the death, is, that scenario is extremely uh, suspicious. I, even in listening to the investigating officer, it just doesn't sound correct. I don't know how it went from being a blonde, blue-eyed white man to, again, a highly melanated black male. It, it's, it's so suspicious, and I think I will, we'll find out more about this case as it proceeds. But um, I'm, I'm curious to see the outcome of this. Um, Ed, the, the other thing is Ed Buck. I, again, I think you played a, a really good clip in, in regards to the reading from uh, Dr. Curry as far as black males and how their, their death is just chalked up like, oh, that's another one. And we don't really address how it happened. We don't really address who it is that, that this individual was, um, how they came to this. Is, oh. Um, but ultimately, basically, they talked about instead the drug problem. And um, two last things. <clears throat> Let me try to make this quick. The Blasio administration is opening up more jail cells <clears throat> in New York City, 60,000, quote unquote, cages for black and brown communities all over New York City. So instead of opening up more housing in New York City, they're having more jail cells in New York City we coming will. to the forefront. Leave it there I'll for those. Thank you kindly. I'm sure we should have extra time. So if you have another comment or <clears throat> if you rushed through what Mayor de Blasio uh, is doing in the great city of New York, uh, we will make sure to come back to you so you can finish up your commentary. Uh, incidentally, the farming <clears throat> farming while black segment cowbell, I think, could be rang twice. Uh, I think the non-white female that we heard, uh, Leah uh, Pen uh, Perryman, I think it is. I might be mispronouncing her last name, but uh, she, from what I saw, the photographs, uh, she looks like she could be married to someone who is classified as white, and she looks like she might also have a white parent. Uh, it reminded me, uh, Lacey Schwartz, if he, Cal's decade, if people remember, uh, Lacey Schwartz, she was on the program back in 2014. Uh, it reminded me of her. Lacey Schwartz is a non-white person who has a white parent, a white quote unquote Jewish parent. Uh, she looks 
very similar. Uh, the farming wild black proprietor, she looks very similar to Lacey Schwartz. Uh, reminded me a lot of her, but she was on the program back in 2014, but lots of cowbell there. Uh, other folks we've not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary, lines should be open. Uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired fire from you. Uh, greetings, retired firefighter. Uh, <laughs> hearing from you again for the first time. <laughs> greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I see you uh, uh, reported the uh, Groblin four case. Uh, one of the uh, many. Uh, Races acts in the beautiful state of Florida. Um, as I predicted, uh, the wife of the new Broward Sheriff is a white female. I uh, did some research uh, through this company that he uh, reportedly owns with his wife, Holly. Uh, and Holly is a white female. Uh, I, uh, they, they had in the, uh, in the uh, presentation on the computer of the business, the employees. And other than uh, himself, the Broward uh, County Sheriff, the only other black person is a black male. All of the other employees of this business are, they appear to be white. Uh, it, it may be some others who would be non-white, but none of them look like they would be non-white black people. Uh, DCS program, uh, operated today, uh, primarily uh, went over uh, places in the world, the continents, and gave uh, a little bit of history about the uh, original inhabitants of uh, this part of the world, uh, which is called the Americas. And uh, then uh, the latter half of the uh, of the day, uh, the uh, they went on a field trip uh, to uh, a quote unquote exclusive area in South Florida. Uh, just that quick, it slipped my mind on what the name of it is because I don't really go to it. I didn't even want to go to it, so I basically separated ways. Uh, and did not uh, go with them. Um, it's an exclusive area in the Miami Beach area. Quote, unquote, exclusive because why? Because they're wealthy white people. That's why it's called exclusive. 
of course. Uh, didn't have any interest to go, uh, but uh, basically uh, also uh, it was also an attempt, which I did agree with, an attempt to get money from wealthy white people uh, for the program itself, which is specifically one of the reasons on why Mr. Clark uh, chose that site. And I'm trying to think it was something else, but nevertheless, I'll just continue to listen. Thank you. Much obliged, retired. Oh, oh there it is. There it is. It, it, yeah, I, I just remember. I just remembered uh, because you were talking about the airport. I uh, just wanted to give an update on that. Is it OK? Let's hear it. Yes. Uh Actually, what was closed was a concourse, not the entire airport. At least that's what, that's what I was assuming when you were telling me about it. Uh, it was actually a concourse. The article that I read said, and I quote, the least uh, used concourse area. There's, there's several airlines that they mentioned, and none of them are really significant as far as uh, travel, uh, mass travel in this part of the world. As far as what is called the quote-unquote United States, it's not mass travel, these particular airlines, according to what I think, based on what I saw. Uh, and, but nevertheless, there is kind of like a, uh, what they called in the, in the article, a ripple effect uh, that take place. But anyway, I'm pretty sure it did, it does cause harm to uh, non-white uh, and non-white black people's uh, employment. I'm pretty sure of that, regardless of how the article uh, pretend as though it's not as bad as it probably seems. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged. Strive for accuracy. Thank you for the uh, correction. Partial, just limited uh, kind of shutdown at the airport in Miami. Other folks who dialed in, uh, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, let me give the number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Good evening. Good evening to all the callers. Um, Bill Clips again, Gus. Um, the guy leading the march to be in. Um, the Dixie song. He said the Dixie song was a great unifier. Um, the college called Ole Miss. Um, James Meredith. Their name is the Rebels. I wonder who was the Rebels during the time of old Mississippi, you know. Um, but um, I think that um, if you play any, 
any band in college after their team scores a touchdown, regardless of what song they played, it'll be a great unifier. So I don't think that um, you put that in a very good context. Um, man, um, talk about racist. Um, you got Carlton Coon. You got Ernest Hooten. Um, the science used by whites to have scientific ju- um, justification to practice racism against blacks is eugenics, and today is called the Human Genome Project. Um, People are still giving their DNA to these people. I don't understand it. Um, Ed Buck. Um, I was listening to Tariq Nasheed's program, and a gay black male called in and claimed um, this guy Buck is notorious for picking up gay black males. Um, And um, a lot of them I never heard from again. Um, And... um, the story he said was that um, he gives them meth in an injection form. And um, so this guy Buck has killed two black men. Um, Epstein, sex predator, still free on the Virgin Islands. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, Ben Roethlisberger, multiple rape allegations. You mentioned Kevin Sandusky, raping little boys. And, of course, Charlie Seen um, reportedly passed off HIV to multiple women. But yet, you know, Bill Cosby and R. Kelly are the faces that whites want at the world to associate with sexual degenerate behavior. You know, um, it, and it seems like black people are falling for it yet again. Um, the only thing I can say is um, once white people put you in a six-part Mini mini series. Um, your best bet is to probably leave the country. Uh, once they spend that type of money and time doing a character assassination of you, generally they could um, the, the, the charges or the murder follow. So um, I would probably leave. Um, the black food growers. Um, Man, I hope the, the the lady, I think she said she wrote a book. I would love to see the sources. As far as from what I've researched, um, 640 foods grow in Africa. 600 of those food seeds or originate in the United States or in the Americas. Um, so I don't, I can't see people coming from Africa with seeds braided in the hair. Um, especially laying down in the army and thesis. Um, but, I mean, I would hope, you know, they have good sources. I'm, I might even, you know, pick that up to see if they have sources for that. Um, and I'll be my line for now, Gus. Thank you. I love footnotes. I love footnotes. Uh, if I'm able to get a copy of the book, I will let you know if they have footnotes for that. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. If you have commentary, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. I hope everyone is having the best evening they can have. Um, there's a lot been said about a lot of things, um, and I appreciate the comments. I just have something brief. Um, the young lady talking about the growing 
the farming. That was wonderful. However, the man, what and the lady, cracking walnuts, talking about the Seder. This is a serious topic, making sure people have enough food to eat properly, eat healthy, and we just have to bring back the lady, cracking walnuts. Fantastic. And, again, something else a little bit more important, the water in Flint still not safe, and with this government shutdown, I'm sure some of the EPA activities have been shut down as well. Um, it won't be safe soon. All the other stuff is important, yes, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's it. That's all I have to say. Have they done, like, a six-part or a three-part documentary on the lead poisoning in Flint? Is that on? Not, like? not that I know. I've, I've seen snippets. I would hear, I would hear maybe on YouTube, but I was just looking, you know, again, trying to, well, what's going on with Flint? You know, is the water safe yet? No. They re-elected their Red House representative who did so much for them to make sure the water was safe in the first place. And, yes, the water is, according to a local source, because, of course, this is not national news anymore, in the local paper, still not safe. Mm. Got to worry about R. Kelly. Mm. <laughs> uh, other folks that we have missed completely, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Can I be heard? Uh, Iman DC. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you. I had something I wanted to say about the chemtrails that are continuously put in the air. White people, ice albinos, are putting chemtrails in the air, chemical trails coming from airplanes. They, they pump it out of their aer- airplanes and they are blocking out the sun. They're doing it every single day. It makes it very, very cold. It snowed in my area recently. There's still snow on the ground. However, the day before the snow, they flew airplanes in front of the in front of the sun, and then the sun was completely blot, blotted out. It was just a, not completely blotted out. It was a circle of cloud just surrounding the sun and then there was there were you could see uh that other clouds were around the chemical clouds what happens is they they then spread well so it's very 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 cold and it continuously is getting cold because white people are blocking the sun we need the sun for life this should be a very big concern to everybody we need the sun the sun is being blocked out. The reason white people are blocking out the sun, there's a couple reasons. The two reasons that are major reasons is one, without the sun, black people die. Two, without the sun, white people are able to propagate a little more, or they're able to continue on earth a little more, a little longer. We need white people to stop putting the chemtrails in the sky. Even if we were to go to absolute war, how do you say when there's more killing, when, there's, when we would call it a, 
escalated war. When airplanes are starting to come down and shoot at you, you, you probably want to shoot at those airplanes, but shoot at the slow moving airplanes spraying the chemtrails in the air. Those, those, those chemtrails are killing us. The chemicals are coming down. I'm outside right now breathing in the chemtrails. It has to come down. It's heavy particles. It's causing a drought in Africa. It's freezing this part of the world. It's killing black people. It's allowing white people to continue on earth unnaturally. They're albinos. They're albinos. We need to solve this problem. We need to warm this planet. We need to continue to live. We need the sun. Thank you. Much obliged. Was was there a suggestion? Uh, just yes, ma'am. Just give me one second. Uh, was there a suggestion? I just wanted to make sure I uh, heard uh, if individuals were going to discharge a firearm at uh, the planes that are discharging chemtrails. Was that a suggestion, or I, I just maybe I didn't hear it correctly? See, um, I I don't know how to say things. You know, I don't. How do you say we're at war and people are killing us and then you should stop it? You know, I'm, I'm not trying to, I, I don't know how to say things. I, I was trying to say if, in, if, the, if we were to get to a point where there is an all out war, I don't even know what that word is, or there's, there's like, like you see people getting shot, you see them falling right beside you. And then you, and then the next minute you look and you see another person getting shot and falling right next to you. And then you have to defend yourself. You absolutely have to, if this is the scenario that we absolutely have to shoot at something and we absolutely have to shoot at the things that are shooting at us, we should probably shoot at the planes that are blocking out the sun. That was the suggestion, but please, I don't even, I don't know how to say it where it's not, you know, a, a bad thing to say. I'm not trying to say we should shoot anything. We shouldn't shoot. We, there should be, there shouldn't be violence. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to make this sound any better, but you know, we need the sun. Hmm. All right. Much obliged. Thank you for the answer. My, my question, uh, princess, if that was you, your volume is a little low. So if you could speak up, that would be helpful. If that was you. I was on my Bluetooth. That's much better. Um, I just uh, called in real quick. Um, I do apologize for um, my commentary last week because um, uh, um, all this uh, stuff uh, with this R. Kelly stuff has been getting to me. Um, but um, I did want to let you know that um, as far as the other caller, um, was talking about the uh, Flint water crisis. Uh, it looks like they had um, just announced uh, at the beginning of this week uh, a contractor that's owned by a black female uh, that they are assuming uh, the role of replacing all of the uh, pipes. It's um, Let me look here real quick and see uh, the name. Uh, the name of the uh, contractor is uh, 
uh, W.T. Stevens Construction, uh, and it's the only Black-owned uh, company to be uh, uh, awarded a service contract to replace the contaminated water pipes uh, throughout the city. Uh, so they're actually, they're pretty much ready to go. Um, they're getting, I guess, um, newly released. Um, from what I read from the article, it, they, they got people lined up. Um, some people uh, that, are, that had just been um, released from prison who have already went through the training uh, and stuff. And um, so they, they're pretty much ready to go. I, I don't know when they're going to be starting that, um, but just wanted to give the other caller some information. Her name is Rhonda Grayers. Uh, 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 she, um, I guess, uh, is related to a former NBA player, Jeff Grayer. And uh, so, um, but like I said, I do apologize for last week. Uh, and just wanted to say that um, to answer you, somebody had asked you a question, I think, uh, Thursday about do you see uh, uh, do you uh, think that black males or black females have it harder um, in the system of white supremacy? Uh, I think you had indicated that you wasn't sure. Uh, I, I would say from what I've been gathering, because my page, my Facebook page is up under a surname or uh, a male's name. And this whole R. Kelly thing, from what I can gather, I would say that, uh, especially uh, from a historical point of view, uh, looking at how the laws were uh, primarily directed against Black males in general, I would definitely have to say that Black males really, really um, uh, have it far worse. Um, I know that might... Um, upset uh, some people, uh, but I'm just looking at it as far as um, how the laws have been geared uh, specifically uh, towards black males. Um, that's part of the reason why I'm up here right now as far as with my dad, because with him being a government contractor, uh, there's things that he specifically blocked um, from being able to um, do or certain uh, resources and stuff. So that's part part of the reason why he had my sister and now me uh, do certain things because there's more resources and more agencies that help assist uh, black females, especially when you look at government contracting and stuff like that. Um, I don't ever recall ever seeing a black male uh, in welfare office. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I just don't see things like that. Um, even like having platforms like this, I do not see uh, large uh, numbers of platforms where black males have uh, a place to go to uh, voice their concerns, uh, whether it be, you know, mental health, um, bodily health, whatever the case may be, uh, even when we talk about uh, sexual abuse stuff. So that's just something that's 
kind of really being on my mind because, like I had shared last week, you know, my dad, because, you know, he's been a single parent father, you know, for quite some time. And even when um, I uh, uh, notified people of me being sexually abused, uh, I know that kind of took a toll on him being a single parent father because I believe, uh, especially when we were stationed in Bermuda, he was always looked at with suspicion. And I, growing, you know, as I got older, you know, that kind of bothered me um, because he had to live like that because, you know, people would assume things about him because he stayed to himself or, you know, did not have uh, too many women here and stuff like that. So I I, I just would say that um, for black males, um, I commend you guys. um, And I'm just sorry for uh, how, what you guys have to put up with. But I do apologize for last week because I kind of got to me. Much obliged. Thanks, Princess. Uh, let's see. That was Thomas in New York, incidentally, who asked that question. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we have missed completely. Uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Hi, uh, Mr. Gus, and to all the listeners and calls, this is Naeem calling out of Brooklyn. Um, I called some months ago, um, and uh, there's a lot that has happened in that time. Um, one incident in particular that I'd like to report, which has been a theme that has been running through the past couple of programs, has been health. And for me, there was a combination of that with a heavy dose of racism as well. My uh, mother had been hospitalized during the hard days. So uh, from before Christmas through the new year period, and she had a multitude of different ailments. And to make it more difficult, it seemed as if my presence and her eldest son's presence uh, almost seemed as a hindrance to her care. Um, there are a series of events that happened immediately starting from when we had arrived to the ER. She was taken to the ER and the racism began immediately. <laughs> uh, so the first thing that happened was when we had gone in, uh, the nurses had been tending to us uh, and then there was a shift change. And so I had to, well, the nurse, the new nurse came in for the night that night was looking for us. They called up my mother's name. She couldn't find us. And so me trying to be helpful, uh, you know, tried to call out to her because the ER was kind of noisy, uh, surprisingly. Um, and so when I did, my voice kind of carried. And I don't know if it's, can be t- if it's noticeable through the line, but um, the bass kind of is, it was, it was pretty serious. And so when I did call her, it was a, a white nurse and the look that she gave us, her head whipped around 
and her eyes were bulging. She was like, whoa. You were about to rape and... her. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately found myself now checking my voice because I did not want the situation to get any more tense than it had been at that moment. And I made sure to actually to take steps back away from her so that she can tend to my mother. Um, the next couple of days were filled with, uh, I'll, I'll go to the ones that were most notable. There are several, it would probably take a couple of programs to go through all of the incidents that happened in that two week period. So the ones that were most noticeable was I, my mother shared a room in the cardiac wing of the hospital with, uh, what appears to be, uh, a, a, a white lady who also had the same symptoms as my mother. My mother had a, a, a she had a stroke uh, and was also experiencing some cardiac problems. Uh, and the, the lady's child, her daughter had come in and we me just being courteous. I generally had built up a conversation with her because I wanted her to know that I knew she was there and present and that she was going to be seeing me. Um, and so she would have to just deal with that. Um, and if that wasn't going to be something that she could tolerate, then fine. But in other words, I'm just making her know that I see her as a suspect racist. Um, and so during one of the conversations that we had, um, she was speaking about how she didn't like how her mother was being tended to. And during the conversation, she mentioned something about uh, one of the white black female aides that was there. And in the midst of her screed about how she didn't like how mother was being treated. And she said, Oh, and that he, she, whatever that thing is, um, which left me obviously stunned, but I kept a straight face at that point because I, there was something else that I was focusing on. I needed to get to that. Um, but then after she said that she then shifted the conversation to, you know, I don't like the way that the, Lady, oh, sorry, one thing before, this is the, the quote that has stuck with me after she said that. She said, you know, I understand that folks might not like the way I do things, but I want what I want. And to me, that was the most powerful statement that I've heard, that if there's anything that I could think of that best encapsulate what racism, white supremacy is, it's that I want what I want. So then she then proceeds to say, you know, I don't like the way that you were talked to the other day, referring to a suspect racist white speech pathologist and how she had dealt with me when she'd come to examine my mother. I immediately started in my mind just laughing because I found it funny that she was now critiquing somebody who performed the same exact thing that she had just did. And it seems as if there was no conscious awareness or rather it almost felt like it was almost like you didn't understand. I, 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 I'm not finding the right words to describe, but you, you, I'm certain that you could sense what I'm trying to get at at this point. Um, it was amazing. I tried so hard not to laugh because that exactly is what a suspect racist would do. Um, and so then one of the other incidents I had was with the attending doctor uh, who was presiding over my mother's care. Uh, I had known him before because he was assisting my mother previously when she was in rehabilitation. Um, some years prior, and so we happened to meet again. And so now we're having a meeting just to check on my mother's care, and 
at that point, I began speaking in a series, explaining the variety, me and him were going back and forth, checking a variety of different things and ailments that she had at that point in time. And during the midst of the conversation, as I'm explaining some things to him about my mother care, like, okay, you know, her blood sugar levels are looking a certain way. What do you think about that? Uh, they said that she's going to need to get a transfusion, da, 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 da. He goes, my goodness, you're so well-spoken. I wish I could speak like that. We're in the middle of talking about my mother's care. You're worried about, <clears throat> how can I cross my T's and dot my I's like that young nigger? Priceless. So then we had another incident following that where he had come back this time with his physician assistant and in the midst of the conversation, uh, I had pulled out my phone. Uh, this tends to be customary for me because I use a BlackBerry and so people tend to always have a comment or a mark about my phone. This time I pulled it out and he's like, hmm, that's an interesting phone that you have. He proceeds to pull out his phone. It happens to be a BlackBerry as well. The physician's assistant, young white lady, also then goes, hmm, a BlackBerry. Uh, then I made a statement, simply put, just because I didn't want to be something of a distraction again to address somebody's care. Uh, please don't worry about the phone. It serves its purpose. Doesn't matter what it looks like, it gets the job done. He then turns to the aide and says, see, I told you, this guy is a very smart person, uh, which alerted me that he has been speaking about me to others, including her before, which my brother also then verified to me because he told me that when he spoke with him, that he was talking about me again. So I was very, I was very cautious around him and concerned. The last one is when me and my brother were sitting outside my mother after she'd been moved to a different floor and a Jewish lady had come through with a cart, uh, with refreshments, milk, water, juice. Me and my brother were sitting outside because my mother was being tended to by the nurses. They asked us to step out. She then passes by. She says, do you guys want anything? We said, no, but thank you. She then goes, oh, I know what you guys want. You want beer, Hennessy. My brother lets out a nervous laugh, and I had a mask on my face at the time because I was battling a cold, but I stared at her and let her understand, okay, no, I, you know that was incorrect. And she seemed to pick up on that because she then left her cart and tried to come back to us and said, nothing makes it better when you're in the hospital. So... That was a wonderful time of the year for me. Thank you for listening. Doesn't get any better than tacky. Uh, Amen. Much, much obliged uh, for sharing. Slick talking negras in the hospital. That's so important. I say that we say that in work in the context of workplace racism, but I say it's it applies in general in the system of white supremacy. We are always under surveillance and i've said that consistently the thing that whites talk about most is the negras us that's what they spend the racist jokes and all of that even in the hospital where you're here caring for your mother and my apologies i hope you know she's doing exponentially better and is done with all that you all are moving forward but yes. um uh, is it possible if i could just add one more thing because i just remembered it. it's real, it's real quick but it's yeah, very yes, interesting sir. yes sir Thank you. So one of the incidents that happened now after my mother was being discharged, so to answer your question, yes, she is doing better. She was being transported. And so at the time, she was being transported by a young black male who I'd become familiar with. 
And during that time, he started elaborating some of the incidents of racism that was happening within the facility. One of interest was that there's a family room that was supposed to be open and accessible to every one of the patient's families to go and get snacks on and so forth. But however, it had a combination um, in Hebrew that can only be accessed if you knew Hebrew and understood the code. So this transporter had actually taken the time to learn the numbers to access the room. And upon him doing so, they immediately changed the code. That's it. Of course. Of course. Not going to have these slick talking Negros around here just accessing the wonderful resources willy nilly that certainly were not placed here with the intention that Negros would be using them and having the audacity to use them without even having to come and let us know or ask. You can just go and do it on your own. Like, what is these uppity Negros around here? He's got a Blackberry. What is going on? <laughs> that is the system of white supremacy. Uh, and the other white woman, uh, I don't like the way that you were talking to. I mean, wow. That is, wow. I don't like those niggers talking to you that way. As a fellow member of the white race, I was outraged. <laughs> These uppity niggers, what is going on here? We got to get things together in the hospital. That. Oh, so for clarification, the speech pathologist was also a white woman. Oh, okay. Okay. Make sure we got it. I thought she was upset saying to the speech pathologist that she didn't like the way that the speech that you apparently talked to the speech pathologist. I thought that was what she was saying. No, she didn't like the way the speech pathologist was speaking to me. Oh, she okay. Had actually, she had actually tried to put me in a timeout corner. <laughs> I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Either way, uh, even I think that uh, whites are still paying attention uh, to interject uh, in that sort of conversation. I thought it was the other way around, but thank you again. Accuracy. Thank you for correcting me on that one. Uh, the, let's see, we had the phone, that one, uh, with, I guess when you were saying the, or trying to explain it and having some difficulty, I think I've said before, that is always brilliant. I have to do that myself at times. Uh, when, you don't know exactly. I said that before. I didn't know if it was repulsed or disgusted about the R. Kelly. I said I would have to take some time to think more because it might be a better word. I suspect that there is. All of us have to do that sometimes. That is preferable to the analogies and metaphors that frequently uh, do not aid. And I would even caution with the uh, things sometimes people will say. I think everybody knows. And then they'll say, you know, fill in whatever or, you know what I'm trying to say. Ooh. I would be very cautious. Uh, in fact, I do not say either of those because I try not to make assumptions about what people know uh, or what people understand, uh, because I found that frequently in the context of racism, people do not know. Uh, and I've also found that there are very, very few situations where everybody is aware of something. Very, very few situations. Other folks that we have missed completely. Emmy the Radiant up late past her bedtime. Did we nab everybody or making sure we miss anybody? Could I add one more thing, Gus? I reckon so. If we have folks that we miss, because it seems like there are other hands. So if we have folks that have missed completely, make sure you are not uh, lollygagging to the end. Uh, did you want to get your other comment in, Princess? 
Uh, yes, I was going to um, say real quick, uh, I, I am going to be starting my new um, job, so that's one of the other reasons why I haven't really um, been calling in too much for workplace racism, but I would also uh, would suggest now, especially with all this R. Kelly talk, uh, definitely don't go into work uh, getting in discussions about it, because with all the new... Um, uh, labels and classifications for people who are um, finding it, um, I guess, hard to believe some of the stuff that's coming out of it and stuff like that. Um, it'll, it'll just be best for people not to engage or get into conversations about it at work. Just to play it safe. Great advice. Workplace racism Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I would uh, give them the who or who. I don't even know who that is and go right back to work. Uh, Did we miss anybody? Anybody that we missed completely? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, greetings to just the host, the listeners and callers. I wanted to start out with the um, the segment on Jasmine Barnes uh, and the person I guess he announced himself is Hispanic and I guess he was questioning about the I don't know the phenotypes or the features of blue eyes and I guess asking like how can somebody you know get this wrong or something like that. Um, I don't know if this may be a comparison, but I remember the, I don't know if this was reported on here, but it was a story a few years ago where there was a, uh, a young white child that I guess uh, disrupted what I believe her older sister was saying that they their house was robbed and they tried to blame it on a black person. And she was like, no, like, what are y'all talking about? It was your... <laughs> It was your your boyfriend, you know, and I think she was like I don't know four or five or something like that, um, and and you know obviously she hadn't been refined yet, so that I was thinking about that story for some reason, um, so for for them to come out saying that like, yeah, you know, the, the teenager said this and she's older, so they're just gonna discredit what what she saw. You know, like nobody was there but the victim. So how can you just discredit that? I mean, I was, well, you know, I understand we're in the system of white supremacy, but that, that was definitely interesting. In the uh, the segment with the, I think they was playing a sport and they were defeating, you know, trouncing the other team and they were being called racial slurs. And the, the father was like, hey, you know, you just got to, you just got to be able to just get through it and, you know, but that's just that's a lot to fest up. But see, that's that's uh, the systematic and reinforced uh, uh, victimization that we're put through, where we are misinformed about our current situation. So you know, as parents, I don't think they know how to explain what's happening. So I think it's constructive about how you react, but. I think it's just that thing about uh, not just being a black male, but just being a victim 
it's okay to say, like, I'm being mistreated, like, I'm a victim, even though they try to, well, white supremacists try to, with their uh, media and everything, well, you know, it's, you know, stop embracing victimhood, but, you know, you have victims of other sorts embrace, not embrace, but say they are victims, and even myself, it's like I have to uh, analyze myself, like, oh, am I, quote unquote, uh, quote unquote, angry black man, not man, angry black male, because I've been brainwashed so much. So, me being in this mode of speaking in opposition to my oppression, um, I gotta definitely uh, filter out that programming and being conditioned because. Is the thing I should be doing. Um, and my my next one is the I think that's the Young Turks, the uh, female I believe that was saying she she cannot say something is racism, and saying that the Brock Turner being caught um, raping a I think a white woman or whatever, that's a uh, miscarriage of justice. So when it's when the attention is focused on the black person black male and you know we can't we, it's dangerous to point out oh well what about this person and that person well that's that's the point of justice like you can't um pretty much penalize black males in a context where it's happening on a grandiose scale with white men and even with pedophilia now if anybody noticed when they do these what they call so-called operation things the thumbnails that come up at least in from Florida where I'm at, white men dominate the uh, presentation and the uh, the display. So uh, that's that's all I had to share right now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Excellent point. Excellent point. <clears throat> I'm still waiting on the the six hour docu series on uh, Jerry Sandusky. In fact. They didn't do a six-hour docu-series on Jerry Sandusky. They did a pretty elaborate uh, documentary that documentary that looked well-financed on the removal of Joe Paterno's statue at Penn State and how whites were so upset and tearful uh, about this because he was uh, a betting child rape, convicted serial child rapist, Jerry Sandusky, who was accused, alleged to have been uh, raping black children, perhaps, uh, for years. Uh, but Joe Paterno aiding and abetting in all of this, even by his own testimony before he uh, died shortly after all this came out in 2011. But I haven't seen a, a six-hour documentary series on ESPN, Penn State, big football uh, program. Where is the ESPN documentary on Jerry Sandusky in the six-hour series? Give us the O.J. Simpson uh, type time length. Anybody else have a final comment? They, oh, wait a minute. I can give a quick uh, quick yoga story. So I wear my cow's t-shirt every yoga class. Maybe at the retreat, I won't have to wear my shirt. Well, well never mind. <laughs> I wear my cow's shirt to every yoga class. So I have my shirt on. White woman, suspected racist. She's uh, staff at the studio. And she says, I love that shirt. It's, it's so uh, subtly subversive. And she said, <clears throat> what's your experience been practicing at the studio? It's all these whites here. And I said, oh, <laughs> it's almost like I'm so glad you asked. 
I said it has, uh, and sh- she knows, uh, I guess for complete context, she, I wear my shirt, so it's got the Cows logo on the shirt, and I've, you know, practiced. I'm, they're about to have to give me my 500-class celebration. So they've seen the shirt. They've seen the logo many, many times, hundreds of times. Uh, and she knows that I do the context of white supremacy. So before she asked this question, she said, oh, I saw your podcast. I listened to a little bit of it. I had things to do, but I'm going to go back and listen more. No surprise there. Stand by your work, as Mr. Fuller says. So she asks the question, what's your experience been uh, practicing yoga with all these whites? You have that shirt on. And I said, as I said, so glad you asked. It has corroborated every thought that I've had about racism and white people in general. (laughs) She said, oh, really? (laughs) I said, absolutely. That is exactly why I wear this shirt Every class, I said, oh, my. for example, I said, how is it that they have nigger played in a yoga studio? How do you have songs where nigger is being played in a yoga class? How is that? And she said, oh, yeah, that is a good point. You've got all these white people. They don't even have black people in the class. Why are they listening? And in a yoga class, that's just one illustration of it has corroborated everything that I thought about racism, white supremacy, but that did happen uh, in class this week. Yesterday, no less. Yesterday. Any other folks have comments they wanted to make sure they get in before we conclude? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. My suggestions for chemtrails that are killing black people is that people should write their politicians, write and call their politicians to stop the chemtrails. People should record the chemical trails, the the specialized airplanes that are spraying these chemtrails. My comment about absolute war is perhaps maybe we're not at the state of war that I'm referring to. The state of war I'm referring to is when fighter planes are dropping bombs and shooting you, when that happens, or if that happens, it's happened in every other war that I've, I've looked at. I've looked at several wars, and it's happened. Well, at the same time that's happening, they're going to continue to fly those specialized airplanes that are dropping chemical trails because they still have to blot out, block, block the sun. My suggestion was to stop the chemical trail planes, even more prioritize the chemical airplanes over the fighter airplanes. I could be incorrect, and I could be, I should, maybe I shouldn't say it. I don't know. Thank you. M. Han DC. Uh, any other folks have final comment they needed to share before we conclude? Yes, sir. Uh, just something on a lighter level, uh, but nevertheless, it has something to do with in, uh, uh, employment. Uh, I recall you mentioning about uh, in the NFL uh, that uh, a lot of black males who were head coaches were fired. Uh, I just saw, uh, I think it was last night, to whereas all of those positions so far have been replaced by 
white males so far. Uh, there is a strong possibility, though, that the Miami Dolphins' uh, position of head coach would be filled by a black male uh, and uh, possibly one more black male may receive a head coaching position. I would just say, and I'm probably going to break uh, your uh, uh, metaphor code, both of those black males are going to be needed to be standing uh, in uh, in prayer <laughs> for, for the position that they would uh, be able to uh, obtain. Uh, because it is tough being in that position uh, as a head football coach in the National Football League as a black male. Thank you. For sure. I think I did see an image where they did not hire any of the privileged black males. The caller in New Jersey, did you want to get your other thought in? I said I thought I would circle back to see if you had uh, another comment that you wanted to get in. Uh, it sounded like you had more you were going to share earlier. Uh, yes, sir. Um, this was in regards to um, I'm actually in New York City. Sorry, my apologies. And, uh, it's quite all right. Um, this was in regards to uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio um, opening four new jails, Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, um, and there's no actual guarantee that they're going to close Rikers Island. Um, this will add 6,000, use of word right here, cages to lock up our black and brown communities. I'm just reading directly off this paper. Um, basically, there's going to be a, some, kind of, some kind of protest to some degree. I'm not sure what they're planning, but just some fast fact they basically state is that the city spends 270000 per year to incarcerate one person, or that would be 742 per day to detain a person. And um, at this current moment, they're, <laughs> they're spending more money on jail says than they actually are on housing. Um, and there's a housing crisis in New York City. There's another article in regards to that going on. Um, and one more thing I would just like to mention, also in uh, the, the country of Haiti, um, Dominican Republic is also putting up uh, soldiers to go and stop, quote unquote, Haitian people from going into the Dominican Republic. I find it interesting that they're taking the same steps that our so-called so president currently is taking in regards to border control. But um, this is obviously normal in a system of racism, white supremacy. Um, that is all. Thank you. Oh, wow. We almost had additional uh, yoga racism uh, stories. Wow. Yoga retreat. We should make time for that at the Cow's Yoga Retreat for the black yogis uh, that are out there to share their experiences with white supremacy racism uh, at the yoga studio uh and emmy doing her yoga brag she has done 24 classes in seven days very very impressive wow that's like teacher training uh type numbers wow uh i had a quick 
questions. Quick question, uh, Princess. Uh, where is this uh, retreat going to be at? Tennessee. In Washington State? Tennessee. Said oh, earlier, okay. Tennessee. There will be a pamphlet forthcoming. Uh, you can send an email, and it will have all of the details, February 21 to February 24. Uh, there should only be 15 slots. Uh, I am still a curmudgeon, and I am not sure that I would do well. Not that, you know, there are legions of people like, oh, yes, we you know cannot wait to come hang out with Gus, but just I am not sure how well I would do if it was, you know, a whole lot more than that. So the number is 15. Um, yeah, just to make sure that we get that. And all of the details will be in the pamphlet. I will mass email all the folks who have emailed me. Uh, if you are interested, I'll make sure it's posted. Uh, but February 21 to February 24, room board, all of that will be included. It is plant-based eating, again, so that people have correct expectations. That means no honey. People who have addictions to that, save the bees. Uh, and that is three hours. Uh, we will be here uh, in the week. Check the schedule for the latest broadcast. Oh, my goodness. I forgot the book club. So we ended Dr. Curry's uh, The Man Knot. Uh, I was not thinking of, I'll post on uh, online as well for the new book. I said, Mumia Abu-Jamal, live from death row. I am not reading anything for a while. So a listener would have to narrate that. I don't think there is a audio book for live from death row. Uh, we could look at Michelle Obama's new book. I'm not excited about it, but you know, eh. uh, Sundown Towns. I do think that is a book we should read. Uh, James Lowen. Uh, and there was one other text. Oh, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. That was mentioned in uh, Pam's book, as well as Dr. Curry's uh, text. And uh, I think we only had one person who said they had read it. And I had been thinking for years that that would be a great text to read on the program. So we will see. You can cast a vote. Uh, I'll share and we'll have a decision made by Tuesday. That way people will have an opportunity to get the book who want to participate in the book club. Uh, that said, much obliged to all the folks who participated. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy for a Saturday evening. Uh, be as safe as you possibly can. Sobriety be, would be best under conditions of white terrorism. There are a plethora of illustrations uh, of whites terrorizing black people. Let's really try to do all that we can to make sure our brain computers are functioning optimally so that we can make great decisions to keep ourselves and any folks that we are responsible for as safe as possible under very dangerous conditions. War is being waged against us. Let's make sure our behavior reflects that accordingly. In addition, let's make sure we're buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with raping race soldiers like Daniel Holtzclaw. Badge or no. Buckle up, driver or passenger, every time. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. 
remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.